Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, May 15th, 2019, starting at 2.17 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 206th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Christopher Renstrom about the uh, famous astrologer Evangeline Adams and the general topic of astrology in America in the 19th and early 20th century. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes and other things, uh, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Hey, Christopher, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure. Yeah, we've been planning this for a while, and I'm excited to do it. So we're gonna we're dealing with two topics that are like sort of discrete topics that could almost be episodes on their own, but they're so interrelated that we're gonna try to deal with both today. And one of them is like the development of the practice of astrology in America over the course of the past two or three centuries, and then also separately one of the leading figures. In early 20th century astrology, who really helped to popularize astrology, who was Evangeline Adams. Right. So, um, yeah, so I should say, so we're basing a lot of this talk off of Karen Cristino's book uh, titled Foreseeing the Future Evangeline Adams and Astrology in America. And she, this is a book that was published in like 2003, but she recently, in January of 2019, published a revised and updated edition. Um, and I did want to say that I did try to get her for an interview, but I wasn't able to. But she suggested that I should talk to you because you're an expert um, about astrology in America, and especially the 19th and 20th centuries, right? And it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible privilege and honor that she suggested me. Um, I'm hope I'm up to the task. Karen is an extraordinary researcher, and this book on Evangeline Adams is. Absolutely amazing, and I've been. My background is the uh, history of astrology in America from pre-revolutionary to uh, modern time, and when I was beginning it back in two thousand, <laughs> um, about two thousand three, Karen's book was instrumental, and meeting her and w- working with her, and I still do work with her quite a bit, um, is is instrumental. So this is an extraordinary uh, book. She's an extraordinary astrologer. And um, it's an extraordinary honor to have been asked to step in for her because of her very, very busy schedule. Yeah, and I stayed up last night um, late, very late, extremely late. I don't even want to say how late <laughs> reading the book. How late? And, uh, and it was actually until like six o'clock in the morning. So, uh, so it was actually an amazing book. It's incredibly well written, and it's an incredibly yes. easy read. It's a, it's like just over two hundred pages, but. I read it over the course of in like a night um, because not just because it's compelling, but it's actually incredibly well written. So I really have to sort of, you know, hats off to Karen for writing yeah. an amazing book. And it's like history and biography, but she has like great sort of insight and occasional like wit and, and other things that just make it a really enjoyable read. Yeah, she has um, a wonderful prose style, actually. You know, she has yeah. a very simple. Pro style, but it's also very evocative. So you know, it's it's just a terrific book. Yeah. Sure. And so we should define Evangeline's time period first before we get into the broader topic of astrology in America, just so people know, you know, when she lived. So um, do you know? Well, when basically, ba- basically, Evangeline Adams is pretty much known 
be, uh, for two reasons. The first one is a trial that took place in 1914 in New York City, um, in which she was arrested for fortune-telling, um, and she combated that charge, and she won. And that has always been seen as a real sort of plant-the-flag victory for astrologers here in America. Um, what happened as a regular thing is that the police would go through uh, gypsy fortune-telling parlors or immigrant fortune-telling parlors in New York City, and they would do these sweeps where they would just sort of like sweep up anyone who was doing what they determined as being fortune-telling, which was defined very generally and very vaguely. So that could include a gypsy, it could include a German-Jewish immigrant, it could include a spiritualist. And they would be taken down to magistrate court and they would be fined. Um, and that's a story in itself because it wasn't quite that draconian. Some of them would contest the fine and some of them would amuse the magistrate to such an extent with their abilities that they were let off. But Evangeline Adams was, was brought on in and she contested it, and she won. And so this did a lot to legitimize astrology in terms of its legal standing, and um, gave it a very strong foothold uh, in society. So that's, I, I would say that that's primarily what she's remembered for. Uh, the second thing that she's remembered for is that in the 1920s, she passes in the early uh, 1930s, uh, but in the 1920s, um, she was interviewed in every single woman's magazine across the nation. Uh, she ends the 20s with a radio program, which is broadcast, Foreign's Toothpaste, which was the competitor of Pepsodent um, at that time, was her, was her sponsor. So she was really a household uh, name as well. I mean, the closest that we... Uh, a modern-day equivalent of that would probably be Susan Miller, you know, or before then um, it would have been Linda Goodman. So, so Evangeline Adams was this really towering figure um, in the early uh, 19-teens and 20s of the United States of America. Right, and she would have been like one of the leading figures that helped to popularize astrology in America in the early 20th century. I think Holden said that she would have been the most famous astrologer in the first third, basically, of the 20th century. Easily, easily, easily. without a doubt. And, and, and in okay. fact, she, um, she, her business model, the way that she did astrology, and what, what I also want to sort of um, articulate here for, for your audience is that we're, we are talking popular astrology. So we are not talking astrology that's in astrology ma magazines, manuals, like for instance, uh, Alan Leo had an astrological magazine that he ran, and that was for an astrological reading public. Uh, we have American Astrology, Horoscope, uh, Dell Horoscope, these magazines that come out, but these were astrology-specific. Sure, like astrologers talking to astrologers versus exactly. what she was doing was as an astrologer talking to the public. You would find it on the news rack, um, and uh, a lot. The other thing that sort of combined with what she was doing, because she read for celebrities, um, is that astrology magazines, as they begin in the nineteen twenties, it ends up happening much more in the thirties, would model themselves as movie magazines. So if you went to a newsstand on your way to grab the subway in New York or get a bus or whatever, you would pick up a movie magazine and then an astrology magazine, which looked just like one, and you. Get that one there. So what this did is that this proliferated this 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 really seeded astrology in the imagination and the consciousness of the general public, 
And so she got outside of sort of those more esoteric or rarefied circles. And she really brought astrology pretty much to the common man. She's like the Johnny Appleseed of astrology. And like that. you know, that's that's her legacy. That's her legacy. Brilliant. All right. So that's a great context then for this broader discussion about Evangeline Adams and her life that we're going to get into, but then also the rise and popularization of astrology in America. Because one of the things I've talked about in the past, I did an episode with Nick Campion about the revival of astrology in modern times. And, and part of the context for that was that in Europe, astrology kind of dies out or falls into disrepute um, around the 17th century and around the time of the scientific revolution. Um, it's it's during the parliamentarian. You have the parliamentarian wars, which is Lily's rise, but then right after that, with the restoration of Charles II uh, and the uh, setup of the Royal Society, um, astrology because it had become so dangerous. As it didn't matter whether people believed in it or not, it was dangerous as a propaganda tool. Um, got disconnected. Uh, one of the first. Uh, Things that the Royal Society does is debunk astrology in terms of you know science, but they also make sure that it has no access to the press at all, and so and that's because Charles the First's father was beheaded, and and part of what played in that beheading was a prophecy by William Lilly. So there was no interest in astrology continuing during the Restoration period. So you basically have an unplugging of the apparatus. Um, and astrology travels to America um, in two forms. Uh, astrology is already in the, uh, astrology comes to America with the pilgrims, and it comes to America in the almanacs. It comes to America in the Culpepper's English uh, Physician, and it comes to America in something called the Book of Knowledge, um, which we would see as basically being a popularized book of astrology. So. When England stopped writing and publishing astrology, for instance, the Book of Knowledge, which gave the signs and how to predict and planetary hours and things like that, that was still a bestseller in the colonies. Um, so, so, so astrology is on its way out in the 17th century. So, ironically, Lily publishes but transplants here. Yeah, right. So, Lily publishes his work in um, what was it? Seventeen, not seventeen. It's sixteen. 1750 like, something. I think it's it's. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have my dates here, but I believe it's yeah, like it's about the 1630s, 1650s. It might be a little bit later, like 1680s, but it's during the midsection of of the 1600s. Um, okay. Yeah, it's 1640, 1647. So William Lilly yeah. publishes uh, Christian astrology, which is like the first great English language manual on astrology. In 1647, because up to that point, even books written in England tended to be written in Latin, which was like the educated language of the day. Mm -hmm. So Lily publishes that in 1647. It's like this great compendium of natal and horary astrology and, and a great introduction to astrology. But then astrology by that point is already on its way out for a variety of different societal and, and other factors. It wasn't just the scientific revolution, as you said, but there were other political and other social factors going on as well. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Astrology on its way. Yeah, astrology on its way out at yeah. that point, and then in Europe and in like uh, you know the UK and France and Germany, and even though it has that li that little flourishing towards the end of that with Lilly publishing that text and some of his contemporaries, 
it's sort of on its way out. But in America, where they're sort of still influenced by some of those texts and stuff, you're saying that there is some transmission of astrology to the United States or what became the you know, United Chris, States, the, I guess, a century later, later. You know, Chris, the best way of thinking of it is as repotting a plant. Mm -hmm. Okay. Astrology had kind of um, run its course in, in Europe. You also have to remember it lost university sponsorship and being taught in the university right. um, in the early 1600s. So there was nothing to support astrology as an academic discipline except a consumer market, okay? And that consumer market was something that Lilly utilized with his pamphlets, and that was, that brought up a tr I mean, that really popularizes astrology in England. It becomes seen as dangerous, um, and it's unplugged, and then the Royal Society is set up. But that plant, which is, which had kind of like outgrown its pot, is then transplanted to America. And in America, which already has this Puritan tradition, um, which is anti, yeah, it's not anti-king, not yet, but it already has this, we're coming away from a place of religious intolerance, et cetera, picks up astrology. It doesn't really see it as a contradiction at all. Um, what's also, I think, really important for your audience to understand is that Lily isn't the only important astrologer in England at this time. Nicholas Culpepper is. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, it can be argued that Culpepper was probably more popular earlier than Lilly was because he had connected astrology to the herbals. To he had translated uh, from the Latin into the vernacular into English um, the English physician, which was based on herbs, but also getting the right herb with the right right planet and time of day. And Culpepper initially published uh, the uh, herbal physician with an ephemeris. You bought the two together. So this mm. is what the Puritans are coming over to America with. This is, there's no pharmacy, there's no drugstore in America. <laughs> so they sure. are consulting astrological texts, both in their almanacs and in their herbals and also uh, the book of knowledge. So this is, astrology takes root in America in, in two places, which is the Massachusetts Bay Colony and then uh, Philadelphia. Sure. Okay. And then um, Lily's writing in the mid 17th century, but then it's not until a century later yeah. uh, that we have the the founding of America as like a new country uh, in you know the 1770s, and mm -hmm. all of the sort of Enlightenment era sort of founding fathers and some of those thinkers and some of the motivation behind what they were doing with that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of them that's interesting that astrologers sometimes talk about, and sometimes the discussions are kind of misleading, is uh, Benjamin Franklin and the question yeah. of whether or not he was an astrologer or had anything to do with an astro with astrology because he did publish an almanac at the time, right? Right, but at that point, the presence of astrology and almanacs, the height of the presence of astrology and almanacs is with Nathaniel Ames out of Massachusetts. And um, once he passes away, you've got John Tolley and you've got some other things, but they're starting to be criticized by the rise of the Enlightenment. Uh, Franklin publishes this famous uh, parody of the death of, a, of an astrologer, and then the astrologer's like, I'm still alive, you know, and it turns into all that. And, yeah, but and, he, and that's really important. He, Let's dwell on that point just for a second yeah, before moving sure. on, because that's important because sometimes I see on like Twitter periodically, some astrologer will quote Benjamin Franklin in 
when he's writing under a pseudonym in his almanac where it seems to be favorable towards astrology, but in fact, if you study some of that material and study what he was doing, he seemed to be doing like satire and parody. Complete satire. And he, <laughs> and he was kind of like making fun of astrologers and like making predictions that other some astrologers would die, or, and then when they didn't die, he would like pretend in the next issue that they were dead, and like this astrologer. Well, that was would... the whole joke, and it was done on. That was the whole joke, and uh, was it done on a Leeds? It was done on 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 Partridge. I think it was Partridge. I'm sorry, I wish I had had my notes, but it was done on a contemporary astrologer at the time, and it was uproariously funny. I mean, everyone enjoyed it. You have to remember they didn't have Twitter back then, so right. <laughs> when he published an almanac, it was there for the year, and so people got a whole year to like read it. And the fellow wouldn't have been able to unless he had an almanac where he could have responded. So no, Franklin had nothing to do with it. But what you also have to remember is that um, astrology is still in the almanacs. Uh, there, uh, you know, plantings being done by the moon and things like that. But they're still carrying uh, planetary movements. Weather prediction is done according to the planets uh, during mm. that period of time. So astrology might not. And then of course. Culpepper's uh, English physician, but sure. um, so that's really important, though. The that it's very important. Astrology is only really surviving in the public consciousness through this popularized form of like almanacs, and almanacs would contain a whole mixture of different things, and some of that material is astrological, but it's not hardcore astrology. And there's definitely a decline in the practice of astrology and the publication mm -hmm. of astrology mm -hmm. books. And mm -hmm. astrologers casting birth charts and things like that is at an all-time low during the 18th and 19th centuries, not just in Europe but also in America. Uh, but it is surviving yeah. in some popular form in these almanacs. Well, and also uh, two other things I have to throw. Uh, first idea I want to get everyone you know to understand is that it's gone into the background. Just because you don't recognize it as astrology doesn't mean it's not astrology. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's really really important. Um, the other thing is that it's carried along in, along in the Book of Fortune, and that's really important because the Book of Fortune is what moves from the almanac into popular entertainment. Um, and this is where I make an argument somewhere else that if it weren't for the sun sign column or the popularization of astrology, you wouldn't have astrology. So what happens is that in the uh, late 1700s, uh, you or, or early 1800s, uh, what you have are these dream manuals, you know, where people are looking up their lucky numbers and dreams and, and seeing what these things mean. And these are being sold in every grocery store, again, from coast to coast, um, along with sheet music, because people sang, you know, that was evening's entertainment, you sang at a piano. And astrology was being carried along in that as well. So it always stayed in the public memory. It always stayed in the public consciousness. It might be called lucky day. It might be called, you know, um, it, it might give you a psychological characterization of you. It might come up as part of dream interpretation, but it was always kept in the public consciousness by the mass media. And that's something that as astrologers, we really, really have to be thankful for. Um, because sure. again, I think the piece that we take out is that once it left the protection of the universities, it was vulnerable to extinction unless it took up in, in the popular press. Sure, although certainly the perception of astrology and its legitimacy declined so that it became associated with mysticism and like um, 
to some lesser extent, maybe occultism or irrationality and things that were not necessarily seen as good. There started to be, prior to previous centuries, more of a stigmatism associated with astrology, it seems like to some extent, than let's say before where where it's in universities and like doctors use it for diagnostic purposes and some right. of the great, greatest astronomers like Galileo or Kepler you right. know are are astrologers themselves like this right. is a different cultural context for astrology in like the 18th and early 19th century and to my mind and imagination it's one of its richest times it's extraordinary we have to be careful when we talk about irrational and mysticism in America. Okay, Europe is a different deal uh, from my limited understanding of European history, and and certainly uh, please correct and, and educate me. But here in America, the scientific enlightenment doesn't take off with the same character that it does in Europe. Europe had gone through the Thirty Years' War, and so religion was something they really wanted to have no part of. <laughs> you know, it had caused all this conflict. Um, but in America, we describe America as a Christian nation, but the reality is that America is a nation of Christianities. We're the only country that has as much as many spins, variations, different versions of Christianity than any other country on, on the earth. And so during this time of uh, scientific enlightenment, what should have been scientific enlightenment here in America, you also have this incredible religious revivalism, and then this splintering off of all of these different Christianities, whether it's Seventh-day Adventists, the, uh, later on it's the Pentecostals, you get the Jehovah's Witness, you get uh, the Mormons, I mean, you get Episcopalians and you get uh, uh, Congregationalists, I mean, it even starts with the founding. And this is something that we have to really keep in our mind, because in these religions were also prophecy and the idea of opening up the, the Bible and being able to prophecy from it. This is why in the early 20th century, um, during the Scopes Monkey Trial, that whole uh, literalism of the Bible is so important. So even though it's not astrology, this irrational, what you were, you used the word irrational, and mysticism, this was infused in the American culture, but not in a we have to get rid of it, we have to be more scientific way, which is actually more the, the European um, might even be argued the German, I, I went with that, but I would say more the European model. In America, we have this revivalism that's going on. So we have a mystic impulse that's going off in a variety of different directions. That's just Chris, the Christian part of it. We also have spiritualism, which is an extraordinary movement that sweeps through the United States of America in the 1840s and 1850s. Yeah, I'm and I want saying, to introduce that. I just yeah. want to, before we do that, I want to contrast it with because we can't understand the importance of the rise of spiritualism without understanding how that was something new prior yeah. to that. Let's say in the century that led up to it, because part of it, I understand and I sympathize with the counter argument that you're making that there was a strong religious and mystical bent always Prophetic underlying prophecy, yeah, right? Underlying American culture, um, but there was also with like some of the founding fathers and the creation of the US, um, there was also some of that post-enlightenment or, or enlightenment sort of thinking going on that was very strong as well as a major, you know, current, like um, even with things like creating a separation between church and state, for example, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. is a sort of result of that. So 
that's happening in like the 1770s. But then, yeah, during the middle of the 1800s, we get this new development. Interestingly, not too far from the discovery of Neptune, we get the rise of spiritualism. I think it's around the same year or within two years. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Like, in the, like the 1840s or 1850s. No, it's 1846, 1848. So one of okay. them is the Fox sisters and the other one's Neptune. Might actually even be the same year. Yeah. And so what is, if we can define it really concisely, spiritualism as it sort of develops in the middle of the, the 1800s? Spiritualism is an extraordinary movement that, again, because it's misunderstood, it tends to get diminished, but it was much more powerful than that. It was basically this idea that you could communicate with the dead. What we have as a result of spiritualism is the Ouija board. This is when it becomes in vogue, or following civil war is when it becomes in vogue and when it becomes popularized. But before then, you had um, talking to the dead. This was connected to the Fox sisters, which is a group of three sisters who would answer questions that we people would ask uh, with with knocks. And this was supposed to be dead people who were communicating, and they become this extraordinary sensation. Um, spiritualism is very important um, again because what we have to keep in mind is that. Uh, Spiritualism does for the feminist movement what Quakerism does for abolitionism. Okay, it gave women a voice in houses of worship where they were not allowed to speak. Okay, so the big proponent, the audience of spiritualism was was uh, majority female, but most of the proponents, most of the advocates, the people speaking uh, in spiritualism were also female. Um, our closest analogy to understanding really what a spiritualist was would be if you remember from the 1980s, the popularity of channeling. I think one of the products out of that is the Book of Miracles or, or Seth Speaks, where someone would go into a trance and they would channel an entity. This is what they were doing. And so we're, they were speaking to the dead. And there was this feeling that, um, you know, I don't have to die, go to heaven, and then meet my loved one. I can actually communicate to my loved one right now. And so what was being communicated was this beautiful paradise, this lovely heaven. Everyone went to heaven, uh, this utopian society. And so this gave hope to women. We have to remember how many children died in childbirth, how many women died in childbirth during this, the, this time. And so this idea that you could talk to newly departed loved ones and that they were alive on the other side, this through the idea of Christianity on its head. What also spearheaded spiritualism is the uh, Christian crisis in America. We're talking 1840s, 1850s, in the time in which you had some Christians saying, you know, we are all born of light and spirit, and so we're made in the image of God and in God's image of light and spirit, and other Christians who were slaveholding and who were saying, um, no, we're not all born this way, and we have slaves, and we're not, and these aren't people. This is property. So this was an extraordinary clash between the two sides, a schism through the, the the through Christianity in the culture at that time. And spiritualism, we would call it right now like an alternative belief, but it was so much more powerful by that. And one of the things that it really championed was women's rights. Um, the spiritualists talked about marriage as being slavery, overthrowing that institution that women who were silenced in a house of worship 
could rent a theater or or a speaking hall or whatever and go on about spiritualist beliefs and and, and channel so it gave this incredible voice and it goes it goes flying right through the country i mean there's this network of spiritualists that goes from you know philadelphia all the way to los angeles or or california right. eventually i mean it doesn't do it right in the 1840s but it takes that much time and this is the same circuit across the country that astrology will later on take uh because obviously astrology was of interest to that that audience as well Sure. So people suddenly come, comes into vogue through spiritualism to start holding like seances, and like seances mm -hmm. become very popular, which is like a group of people, you know, trying to raise spirits or like talk to the dead or something like that. And so, um, mm -hmm. so on the one hand, yeah, there's that whole there's the positive spin that you're giving. I want to put the other part of the spin or the other perspective that people sometimes have on spiritualism, which is that sometimes. There were people taking advantage of, you know, the perception that there were metaphysical or occult or like spiritual powers, and they might have been ripping people off or pretending they could talk to the dead um, yeah. when they weren't necessarily, or like making up ghost sounds or something like that. Oh, it got ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> they would sure. actually have people like dressed up behind, you know, a curtain because this is 19th century theater, you know, and they would like wear, you know, uh, garments and shrouds and they would peek behind and enter and walk through and everyone would be like, oh my goodness, it's the spirit of whatever. I mean, like, it's really cheesy, but, yeah. but I want to make one point and then I want to do a compare and contrast. The quick point that I also want to make is that the rise of spiritualism also combines with America's first exposure to the Asian cultures and the Asian religions in particular, um, and the most popular feature being reincarnation and yoga, actually, although yoga comes a little bit later. But reincarnation is introduced through spiritualism in the 1840s and 1850s into America. So this idea of life after death or being having past lives or reincarnated, this is when this comes into the American consciousness, and this is due to spiritualism. But a very quick thing that I want to say is that spiritualism hits this scandal in the 1870s, 1880s with spiritualist photography, which was done with double exposure and revealing the spirit. And, and it was ridiculous. I mean, everyone laughed at it. But you also have to keep in mind something else. Okay. At the same time, you had just as many Christians saying, the apocalypse is now, or naming a date for the end of the world, or saying, the world ends here, you know, and that the Millerites were famous uh, in the 1800s. So that date for the end of the world would show up and it didn't happen. So, you know, there. so that same argument was levied against Christi the more extreme Christians who couldn't produce the apocalypse on, on time. And so that made them a laughing stock as well. So there was always this sort of like back and forth that was going on, you know, uh, between both camps. But what they have in common is mysticism. What they have in common is the occult imagination or the spiritual um, imagination. So this is also why Christianity and the occult or Christianity and astrology are, have always gone at it with each other. They're, they're like these two siblings that are kind of like, you know, bound at the hip who, you know, slam and, 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 and beat on one another. But that's sure, just to I, sort of give you the broader context of the background. And, and although there are 
occasionally like mystical variants and sects of Christianity. For the most part, spiritualism though represented a a break and like an alternative sort of approach to religious and mystical experience that was outside of mainstream religion and was almost like a thing unto itself. And that was part of what was novel about it and part of what led to its popularization in some sense. And also utopian vision. Remember that 1846-1848 is when Karl Marx writes the Communist Manifesto. So this idea of a utopian society where people are going to be equal, this again was the message of many of the women spiritualists, that men and women were equal. In fact, the woman who um, influences, has such a profound influence on Evangeline Adams, um, Elizabeth Phelps, she was a spiritualist. And she combined um, Christian ideals and equality of the sexes together. So this was something that um, has a very, very deep impression on Evangeline Adams as well. And it also tells women in America, one of the biggest uh, things that makes America so singular, so unique in astrological history is that it's practiced by so many women. You know, in other societies, it's practiced mostly by men. But here yeah. in America, it's practiced a lot by women and it starts earlier with the students and it comes out of that spiritualist impulse. Um, but that idea of equality of the sexes, uh, marriage institution as a slavery, overthrowing it, bringing equality of the races, bringing economic equality. We don't have time today, but I can show you the 1848 or 1849 pamphlet where they talk about this, you know, at a meeting. So a lot of these themes that we're seeing with the New Green Deal, for instance, are actually showing up in the conversation of spiritualists. So they really sort of articulate a utopian vision of America that then goes on to inform New Ageism and, 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 and things like that. Right. Yeah. Spiritualism, in many ways, people often trace the, not the beginning, but it's sort of the precursor to the New Age movement. And that's when things start heading Absolutely. in that direction. Then by Absolutely. the late 1800s, we have the birth of the Theosophical Society, and that's sort of like an outgrowth uh, of spiritualism to some extent, or that's, at least it's... Yeah, that I have to correct you. Uh, okay. You, okay, now, if you're going to say Theosophical Society, fine, okay? Yeah. If you're going to talk about Theosophy, mm -hmm. no, it's much older. Um, yeah, and I, I realize Theosophy, yeah. so there's a difference between Theosophy with a little T versus like Theosophical Society with a capital T and a capital S, which is fundamentally and primarily the writings begins with the writings of Madame Blavatsky in like the 1880s and she through her writings where she synthesizes some elements of spiritualism with some of the basically lifting of eastern religious concepts like karma and reincarnation which right. she like stews together into one big mis mixture with some Western philosophy and some other religious concepts and basically creates a new religion of, of some sort. A publication. You have to remember, um, Madame Blavatsky is the P.T. Barnum of the occult mm -hmm. in the 19th century. <laughs> okay, whatever was sensational, uh, grand, exaggerated, you know, that's what she did, you know, and 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 so she becomes this big deal. And, and in some ways, actually, in some ways, it just struck me for the first time, she might have been like the Evangeline Adams of her era, you know, because she's, she's a big media personality. 
um, she becomes this big deal, but she actually takes off more like in England and maybe like the Los Angeles area of, of America. But um, everyone else is not going to Madame Blavatsky. She just happened to end up getting repeated in the histories of, and particularly the occultist history of America. But her influence is actually more like in England, and then it comes back over here to Los Angeles. But uh, spiritualism was m much bigger than her, um, and 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 the the range of of the appeal was much more broad. She's only here for a few years, and then she I, I think she moves back or something like that. So so it really she tapped into it, and she sold some periodicals, but. Um, the spiritualist movement was its own thing and actually goes goes beyond her. That's I'm I'm kind of like showing what I think of Madame Blavatsky. I mean, she becomes known because she's on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper's Heart Heart Lonely Hearts Club band, <laughs> you know, type of thing. Well, along I, with Crowley, but <laughs> the Theosophical Society had like hundreds of thousands of members and along with spiritualism was one of the major movements that shaped and created basically the New Age movement as we know it in the 20th century, um, or at least contributed to it. Contributed, and yeah. This helped create some of the cultural context where astrology would eventually start to make a comeback, starting in the late 19th and early 20th century, where we start seeing practitioners of the subject again. We start seeing more books being published on the subject, and we start seeing it being popularized in the public consciousness again, not yeah. just in the form of almanacs. Uh, yeah, let me know. That's not how it works. Um, astrology is reintroduced in, uh, again, the two uh, uh, ground zero points for astrology are the Massachusetts Bay Colony and Philadelphia. Um, astrology, uh, what happens, and, and I apologize for not having this note ready, but astrology comes back into being because it because uh, there is an astrological dictionary that's that's published that begins, um, you know, basically, uh, and then becomes published in America. Like I think it's the eighteen early early eighteen hundreds, and then I think at this point you have Raphael, um, and he's doing an almanac over in England, and it's being carried over here into America. Mm. But astrology in America really takes off because of Thomas Haig, um, who is a British transplant to Philadelphia. And he's the first one who transforms an almanac into an actual astrological publication, and this is in the uh, 1840s. So it's pre it's it's uh, even, I think, uh, it's it's even uh, 18 1830ish about 1838. Okay, so remember we don't have the beginning of the Fox Sisters until 1846-1848. So 1838 he starts uh, publishing a purely astrological magazine called Horoscope. Mm -hmm. um, this becomes the model then for Dr. Uh, Luke uh, Dennis Broughton, who starts his uh, Broughton's Monthly Planetary Reader and Astrological Journal on April 1st, 1860. Um, it's got no spiritualism in it whatsoever. In fact, um, he originally envisioned it. It's a long list here, so I apologize. He originally envisioned it as a miscellany intended to cover intended to cover the topics of astrology, phrenology, which was very popular at that time, had nothing to do with spiritualism, zodiacal physiognomy, medical botany, and astrometeorology, which basically means weather. 
But then, because he publishes it right at the advent of the Civil War, um, he does a prediction of the Civil War, uh, which comes true and makes his publication really quite popular. Um, and it takes off. So none of this had any spiritualist leanings. There's no talk of reincarnation or, or anything like that. And, and it's at the same time uh, that Madame Blavatsky is also beginning to publish, but it's not connected to spiritualism at all. And Broughton's really important because he's the one who teaches astrology to Americans and, and with, with Cheney, Hazelreg, uh, Catherine Thompson. And so it's a very... Uh, basic astrology. It's an astrology that you would recognize, absolutely, Chris. Um, and, and it's an astrology that's being recognized as astrology. So it's, so astrology might be carried along on spiritualism, but it's not connected with it at this point. In fact, the astrology at this time is very meat and potatoes. Yeah, and there's books that are eventually, I think Broughton like republishes or publishes an astrology book, but a lot of the books for a long time seem like they're just republishing parts of William Lilly's Christian astrology, right? Um, I wouldn't say Broughton was was writing his own prognostications and things like that. And if you look at elements of astrology, it's it's pretty much it's his stuff along with newspaper clippings because he would get into arguments in the newspaper with scientists over astrology. Okay. And, Who's because I have like the that. big green book that you have up behind you. Who did that one? Do you know? Which green book are you talking about? The like gigantic one in the top right shelf. Oh, right there? Yeah. To the, yeah this that one? one? Right. That's Sibley's Astrology. Right. And that's like a warmed over version of Lily though, right? Sure. Sure. But it's an English publication, you know, and, and so it would have appeared in an American bookshelf, for instance. Mm -hmm. But um, you have to remember that Broughton learned his astrology from Culpepper. Um, he comes from a line of astrologers in his family. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I'm not sure how much one would say Culpepper is just like Lily in terms of the way that they practice astrology. I'll leave that to a couple of better informed people than, than myself. But uh, Broughton's lineage is, is to Culpepper. Um, and what he's publishing on his own is uniquely his own. We know this uh, because uh, what he used primarily for his accurate prediction of the outbreak of the Civil War was uh, Herschel, uh, which we know is Uranus. But at the time that he was writing, it was named after the discoverer uh, Herschel. And so Herschel plays a huge role in a lot of his uh, predictive work that he's doing. So he's already incorporating a planet that Lily would not have had any uh, familiarity with. Um, and, and so he's, he's, I, yeah, I mean, talking out loud, I would say uh, he's probably more in keeping with the Culpepper, uh, tradition. Okay. So, uh, Luke Broughton, he was one of the early sort of famous, uh, American astrologers. He lived from 1828 to 1898. So that's a, his yeah. approximate time frame, yeah. and used Uranus in his prediction of what eventually became the outbreak of the civil war. And that was, Uranus because it was actually making a return back to where it was in the founding of the United States. And that was the Civil War was actually the first Uranus return since the United States was founded in 1776. Right. Yeah, Uranus returned to Gemini. I think it's like seven or nine degrees Gemini, and that's what he was using. And that's what later on Evangeline Adams will pick up on 
And uh, that's her famous, uh, what's been called the famous World War II prediction, is based on that Uranus return. And then, of course, we have Uranus returning to that position, maybe I think about nine-ish years or whatever from, from right. now. But, so it, but it it's came back in, in the 1940s, and that was World War II. And that 1942. Of, <laughs> yeah, so that became part of her prediction, or the basis of her prediction, which then goes back to Broughton, who had used Uranus for, for his prediction mm -hmm. of the Civil yeah. War. And then, yeah, that's a good point. So we just had Uranus go into Taurus this year. And mm -hmm. so we're now one sign away from Uranus returning back again to Gemini mm -hmm. um, in the 2020s at some point. Yeah, feeling a little tense in society these days. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do a separate show on that at some point. <laughs> um, okay, so this sets things up. We have astrologers like that starting to practice again, like Luke Broughton, and he influences and teaches a number of astrologers. Catherine um, Thompson, John Hazelrig, and Cheney. Sure. So by, Cheney. Yeah. by the late um, 19th century, the late 1800s, I guess this is the time to transition into talking about the other piece of this episode, which is our, our main figure, which is Evangeline Adams. Mm -hmm. So Evangeline Adams um, was born in, well, she was born, but she started out, or the early part of her life was in Boston, right? Andover. Andover, okay. Andover, Massachusetts, yeah. So Massachusetts, and she went to like Andover Academy and like was well educated, right? Uh, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, I I know that she, uh, yeah, I, I I'm not sure if I remember that. Was she well educated? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And she prided herself on her mathematics. Right. Um, but early when she was a teenager, she got sick and yes. had struggled with some illness. And yes. then ended up um, consulting with a doctor. A doctor came and saw her because they did house calls still in the 1800s. No, she met him socially. Um, she, uh, what, 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 I understand why you came up with that. It's because in his prediction that he does for her, he refers to her illness or having mm -hmm. been injured, but she met him socially. Okay. Um, he was the president of the homeopathy uh, club, and she met him through another fellow. Um, in in her younger years, she's you know she's socializing. Andover, Massachusetts, is um, fascinating uh, because it's one of the few cities following the Civil War in which the uh, men outnumbered the women. Mm -hmm. It was the other case <laughs> because of the war, obviously, and um, but it was also a very uh, not a calling it a feminist town would be a wild you know, distortion, but it was a place that basically embraced progressive and at the same time uh, staunchly Christian Christian values. Um, she so she would have she would have socialized, um, uh, met a number of different people, and so she meets him through um, another uh, another friend, home, uh, probably after a lecture. She might have gone to a lecture on homeopathy or or something along those lines. And um, she, he then uh, does her chart, and she's so impressed with it, you know. And he picks out things like an illness, or I think there might have been a broken leg, or, or something along these lines. And um, and and he actually even rectifies the chart. He's like, "You must have been born earlier if this if this happened, or or if this took place." And so she's so impressed by it that she wants to learn. And um, and so and he, before you get into uh, that, so yeah, he's yeah. one of the things that's fascinating about him is that he's a doctor, but he also had training in astrology. And part of that, which you mentioned briefly, it's because 
he was interested and had background in homeopathy, not just mainstream mm -hmm. medicine, but also homeopathy, which was like an alternative sort of medical school at the time in some sense. Yeah, at that time, homeopathies, I'm not sure how alternative homeopathy is. It might actually be more of the mainstream you know, at, at, at that time. I mean, I think it's well, medicine not... is transitioning into more, um, but, but a lot of homeopath, homeopathic remedies are commonplace. Okay. Not all doctors, though, had astrological training at that point. It had dropped out of medical training centuries earlier. Uh, what you see there is actually a parallel to Dr. Luke Dennis Broughton, who was homeopathy and an astrologer. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of uh, Broughton, uh, he goes forward with the astrology. In the case of uh, Smith, he doesn't bring that up. And the reason he doesn't bring that up is because he's the what was his title? It's Medica, Medica Materia at Boston uh, University. He's, he's, he's this esteemed um, professor. Um, and, and so that would not have, uh, he, you're right, he was the professor of Materia Medica at Boston University School of Medicine. And so you wouldn't bring up something like that, but he teaches her astrology and he used astrology. And then from him, she begins, um, is the term shadowing? You you follow someone around. Um, she begins uh, shadowing uh, another doctor who's dealing with the criminally insane and applying astrology to psychology, which is just beginning here because of William James, James mm. in the United States. And so this is where she starts connecting homeopathy, psychology, and astrology. This is this unique um, education uh, that she's getting in Massachusetts. Right. So she um, develops this lifelong connection with Dr. Smith, and he ends up being like a hugely influential teacher. She yeah. begins, um, gets connected to, and starts um, getting connected to another doctor who's overseeing or in charge of like a medical institution, a, a mental asylum, or like something like that at the time. Part, part, part of where they're journeying is, is, is the asylum. Yeah. That's one of the rounds, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Right, but they're actually like casting charts for patients, and she's mm -hmm. getting like real, imp not just like um, instruction in the basics of astrology from Doctor Smith, but also getting mm -hmm. like real imp empirical like observations of astrological charts in action in the lives of patients at this time. Yeah, and there's an English astrologer many years before who did the same thing. I think his last name was Northrup or, or something like that, but he also. Um, cast charts for people who, or some of the charts that he cast were based on people who were mentally ill or disturbed or, or something like that, and he kept a catalog or or a file. So there's always been that kind of impulse. Um, but this is what she's doing, and this begins her collection of files, not only of charts, but also we have to remember palmistry. Okay, she was doing palmistry as well as astrology, mm. and so she's taking down. Um, she's she's. She's taking down the palm, the the handprints, and studying those, and also designing a way of profiling uh, different personalities. And that's where she uh, crossed paths with Cairo, uh, who was a famous uh, uh, palmist at the time, and um, would be able to read people's uh, character off their palms. We have to remember bumps in the head phrenology is also popular during this period of time. So this is where you're really seeing the transition of psychology into um, what we would call the occult arts through 
the prism maybe of alternative um, approaches to health and alternative approaches to spirituality. Um, you know, you, Kellogg's cereal appears for the first time through the spas where people begin, you know, eating, you know, proper healthy food. Uh, all this is going on in the late, in the late 1800s. And she's a part of, this is, this is a part of her culture. Yeah. And there's still an ambiguity um, over the sort of scientific status of astrology. Because one of the things that people have to understand that's kind of a misconception oftentimes is that during the scientific revolution, scientists started doing statistical studies on astrology and it was proven to be false. That's not actually what happened. There was no like studies that were done on astrology right. scientifically that disproved it. It just fell out of favor due to a sort of um, a shift in thinking and a shift that was social and political and to some extent scientific or philosophical but there was still this ambiguity by the time you get to the late 19th and early 20th century over whether astrology and other quasi metaphysical subjects could be valid scientific studies and there were some people that were trying very hard to approach them more empirically um, to validate some of those subjects by you know using them in practice repeatedly by looking at tons of charts of patients or what have you well, it's it's fascinating you bring this up, and we probably shouldn't talk about it right now. But I want to footnote it for later in our discussion. Um, mm -hmm. This is precisely why she is. Um, everything you talked about is precisely why she's uh, why the charges against her are, are dropped, um, and for scientific reasons. But it had nothing to do with proving the science of astrology. Yeah. It had to do with the we'll fact get to that the, yeah, the trial. yeah, but but. It actually all comes together in her trial. What, what I and, and maybe I'm being over insistent, but these weren't seen as alternatives at the time. Okay, at the time this was culture. You know, now we see it as alternatives and, and things like that. But what you're talking about with astrology being you know demoted and things like that, there's also a class bias that's connected to that. Um, there's also um, sexism that's connected to that. There's also uh, Catholicism, in order to maintain its supremacy in American culture, had mm -hmm. to attack it. You know, so so there's a lot of uh, what I call agendas that were set up here, like like with anything in history. You know, so it wasn't purely science versus astrology, and astrology was going to lose type of thing. Um, it was how do you get rid of something which is maybe dangerous or a threat or a rival. You know, and so there's that which was going on in, I can't speak for European culture, but in the American culture, that was certainly going on because astrology's rise um, is basically through women. And um, and so when the women get the vote, for instance, in 1920, I mean, and they become consumers and all these sorts of things. So there's that connection as 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 well. But as you're saying, uh, in the late 19th century, it's being reintroduced again, and um, and and hopefully I did an okay job of describing the kind of culture that Evangeline Adams was learning astrology, and yeah. and, and what and was going to become her, her philosophy since... of, of practicing it. Sure, and let's get into her life since we've only got about 45 minutes left. So sure. she's uh, born. Her father dies relatively early in her life. I think she's a baby still or an infant. Yeah. 
Uh, so she grows up with her mother. Um, they're in a relatively affluent family, and she's well educated. She meets Doctor Smith. Right. Well, she has three older brothers. It's a relatively affluent. I think they were pretending to be maybe more affluent than they were. I mean, it's really kind of questionable, actually, how much money was behind because she does an extraordinary thing. She's got three older brothers, and they're much older than her, and things like that. But she takes on the financial care of her mother, you know, which right. is actually and and the care of that unmarried as a woman in that society. So, so her mother gets sick at some point. Or she well. develops dementia. Right. Um, so, and that's while dementia. she takes this caretaker role of her mother while she's still a teenager. Starts no, she's doing. A, she's a young woman at this point. She's about twenty-five, or, or yeah, I think she's about twenty-five, early twenties. Well, she was still a teen though when she started taking that caretaker role because I just read the book last night, okay. and that was something okay. that Karen focused on pretty clearly. And okay. that's one of the things that then made her mother Evangeline... dies when she's twenty-five. Yeah, which is later, but she'd been taking care yeah. of her for a decade at that point almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things that makes Evangeline, aside from in addition to just her personality, but un uncharacteristically independent. She's very independent as a young woman from a relatively early age. Mm -hmm. And, and self-sufficient. I mean, she knows her own mind. She has two marriage proposals that she turns down. You know, if you're taking care of your mother and, and you need finances or whatever, most people would have married, you know, and she turns them down because she doesn't want to be told what to do. And she she's going to uh, financially provide and she she builds herself up. She builds up that financial provide muscle um, in her life. She starts as a stenographer and a secretary. I think she does some teaching. But ultimately, what it's all going to lead to is making her living full-time as an astrologer. Yes, and we'll get there in just a second. But first, she does a bunch of odd jobs where she's living independently, or she's working independently, which society really looks down on at that point in time for a woman to not get married young and to go out and like work on her own and sort of like make her own way in life in some sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... a uh, yeah, it's like, why don't you marry and have kids? <laughs> you know, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> right. Um, well, and, and what makes it even more, you know, difficult is like, you've got two marriage proposals. Why are you saying no? <laughs> sure. And she's partially influenced by and seems to be really um, receptive to and and embraces some of the sort of feminist um, sort of writings that are happening at this time that are being published around this time period spiritualist. We have to be careful with the word feminist with Evangeline because um, many of us would actually describe her as a feminist. I doubt she would have described herself in the same way. Um, spiritualism actually sows the seeds of feminism in, in, in America. Susan B. Anthony played around with spiritualism. She doesn't go that direction, but that network of women coming together um, and speaking up for women's rights and things like that, that comes out of spiritualism. And so um, Elizabeth Phelps is, a, as I mentioned earlier, a terrific influence on her. And so she's getting this sense of like self-sufficiency, which I think is a better word than independence. And who is um, Elizabeth Phelps? She was uh, basically her mentor uh, when, she, when she was a young teen, uh, who was a famous spiritualist writer who wrote uh, Gates Ajar. And it was a bestseller in, in, in America. And so she was someone who, as I was mentioning earlier, was really combining the idea of um, you know, Christian uh, principles with feminist ideals. Right. So 
even though I would doubt that Evangeline Adams would have described herself as a feminist, um, we would see her probably that way because of her insistence on economic self-sufficiency. And then later on in her readings, at no point is she saying, you know, obey your husband and go back to him, you know, or things like that. She's really standing up for uh, not only women's, but men's uh, uh, empowerment, you know, so it's, it's equal sexes, you know, but because she's appearing so much in women's magazines, fashion magazines and stuff like that, her message is still, you know, you can take care of yourself. And, and that is an extraordinary transition from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she represents a really extraordinary and fascinating and almost radical figure in that sense, not yeah. because she was primarily motivated by ideology or something like that, but because she just wanted to do what she wanted to do. And she was a very motivated and, and sort of headstrong person that was going to do what she wanted to do. And so once she She's doing these these various jobs to make ends meet and to help support her mother. She eventually sort of falls into astrology through this connection with Dr. Smith and begins studying it and begins studying it more and more and eventually starts causing tensions with her family and her family doesn't want her to keep studying astrology and doesn't want her to start pursuing it because eventually she starts reading charts but she pretty much just like ignores her family and and says I'm going to I'm passionate about this and this is what I'm going to do. And there's nothing you can do about it, and that makes she moves really... to New York. <laughs> After the passing of her mother, she moves to New York. I mean, it was just she was always involved in her family, and she gave uh, generously to different family members and things like that. But mm -hmm. um, remember, also at the core of this, it's not just about belief and Evangeline is going to be an independent person. She's got to make a living. Right. You know, and she's not going to make a living as a stenographer or secretary. She's going to make a living as an astrologer because this is the thing that feeds her mind, and this is what she believes in, and this is what stimulates her, and this is what draws business to her. I mean, she's tremendously successful right off the bat. Yeah, you know? and and so she starts practicing astrology first in Boston and becomes relatively successful there already, uh, mm -hmm. practicing astrology in Boston in. Uh, what time period are we talking about? Like the late 1800s? I would say 1890s. Yeah, yeah, 1890s. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so practicing in Boston, uh, somewhere around during that period, her mentor, Dr. Smith, eventually dies and, and leaves her and wills her his entire astrological library, including all of his notes. Yeah, which she had already borrowed. <laughs> she had been free to borrow. So, I mean, I think she even had like a number of those books already. Mm -hmm. um, the, the important thing, and, and Karen also points this out, yes, she's caring for her mother, but at the same time, she's saving up her shekels for another astrology book. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So as she's working as the stenographer teacher, she's also saving up to you know buy more books. So yeah, this there, is really her calling. You know, um, um, the, there was a really uh, charming quote that Karen in her Karen Christino in her book quotes at one point about Evangeline. I think it must have been in her biography reflecting on some of those early years when finances were really tough when she was already yeah. into astrology and having to like decide between like buying a new hat or buying a new bonnet versus like buying this old astrology book that she found and deciding to go and like purchase the book <laughs> and having to make She's like hard Aquarius, financial what do you want <laughs> right so here's the quote this is from page 41 of Karen's book and she quotes from Evangeline, and Evangeline says, even the cost of a book was a big thing to consider when it meant going without a new hat. 
I remember distinctly having to decide on one occasion between a much-needed Easter bonnet to replace one of three years' service uh, and an old rare astrology a book on astrology. It's needless to say, needless to add, that I used the old bonnet of fourth year and purchased the book. So right. during this period, like she's getting so into astrology that sometimes like she makes financial sacrifices in order to pursue that. There's also like tensions with her family, and she ends up having to cut out um, some of her family members. She did have a marriage proposal that she accepted at one point, mm -hmm. but her this was before. I think she accepted it maybe before she pursued us got into astrology. But then once she she had got, a problem with it, or she was sensing you know problems with it, yeah, yeah. Once she got into astrology, it caused major tensions with that relationship, and eventually led to the the disillusion, and she left that that relationship. Well, Smith told her in her chart, I mean, either he out and out said you shouldn't marry or marriage wouldn't do well. I mean, you know, he predicted that and that was always in the back of her mind, uh, you know, that marriage wasn't really a good idea. Um, where other women might have felt like, oh my goodness, I've been cursed, I've been whatever. Evangeline was like, yay. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm free to do my thing. And, you know, the only way that she was going to be able to be free to do her thing was to make money, you know, to make herself economically self-sufficient. Um, by the time she, um, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not, but by the time she starts, she spends time in New York, goes back to Boston, spends time in New York, goes back to Boston. It's a back and forth sort of thing. But by the time she's showing up here, she's got a secretary working for her. I mean, so, and she sets up in a hotel with, with a pretty steep rent on Fifth Avenue. So Evangeline Adams is making money, you know, but she was also working that as well. Yeah, I mean, it comes she's up doing in a lot transcripts of... where she would, you know, invite people to come on back or whatever. Spend, you know, so so she was a good seller. <laughs> she's yeah, a good she seemed like a good seller. She was a hard worker. She studied well in her early studies. She also had an early teacher. That this was actually a really interesting point that I was fascinated by. That Karen uncovers is that she had another early teacher besides Doctor Smith, who was actually a woman. And mm -hmm. she learned a fair bit actually from this person, but they must have had some sort of falling out because the Evangeline never Catherine Thompson, <laughs> right? Because Evangeline never mentions her in her later books, but it turned out, or it appeared that Evangeline was actually strongly influenced by Catherine Thompson, perhaps more by their rivalry. <laughs> okay, so and this was back. In, this is back while she was still living, living in Boston, right? Yeah, Catherine Thompson. Catherine Thompson uh, knew Broughton. I believe that she studied with Broughton. I've got notes where she refers to him, and she's talking about a solar return and and things like that. But she was a notoriously difficult woman to get along with, and and very. Uh, she's British, and she you know was very very opinionated, and you had to you know do astrology like this or whatever. And I think that just they. It clashed, and then as Evangeline Adams becomes more famous, um, Catherine Thompson starts competing with her, you know, in the newspapers and things like that. But but where we're going to remember Catherine Thompson, and when what really does make her important, even though it only lasts for a couple of years, is her magazine called The Sphinx, uh, which was again modeled on maybe a Raphael meets Alan Leo. Uh, type of thing. And that runs in, in like 1899, I think, to about 1901. I'm just going off the top of my head. But but she publishes uh, that magazine 
Um, and I think it's, Saf I never know how to pronounce that guy. Safar Safariel? Safariel. Right. He actually invested in it, you know, and writes this kind of like little bitchy letter because he lost all of his money. <laughs> he lost the money. They, he didn't lose all of his money. He lost the money that he invested in the magazine. But, but right. she comes out with a magazine at that time. And then John Hazelrig comes out with a magazine as well. So we're seeing the publication of astrology magazines that are going outside of the astrological that are going outside of student circles, you know, and 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 becoming, you know, commercial, which again is inform what Evangeline is learning is use the press. You know, this is the big lesson that she's learning, which is use the press. And I don't know whether you want to talk about the Windsor fire at this point or not, or Yeah, I just wanna let's so let's finish up the last of her time in Boston. So she's sure she learns of this teacher Karen Tom uh, Catherine Thompson. Catherine Thompson. And the Catherine Thompson thing's interesting because Catherine sounded like an interesting but kind of a weird figure. Like she was like a flat earther and may have been like a little bit a little bit crazy <laughs> a little bit crazy. Um, she was yeah, no she <laughs> <laughs> and I have so much Catherine Thompson material, more than I know what to do with, and okay. she's a little bit, uh, yeah, yeah. But none, nonetheless, it seems eccentric. <laughs> eccentric. That's a good term. And <laughs> <Yes>. this uh, <laughs> Evangeline, one of the points that Karen makes implicitly in looking at Evangeline's later career is it seems like she still emulated and ended up accomplishing some of the things that Karen, that that Catherine, Catherine. wanted wanted to accomplish or had set his goals but never fully got to do like becoming like the most famous astrologer in America was like one of Catherine's goals that she never quite accomplished but her yeah. student um Evangeline did okay again I'm resisting student because she she pick up studies with Catherine a little bit but she's mm -hmm. I don't think she spent much time I I think Evangeline was actually kind of more like a uh, pollinating bee. She was going from one person to another, to another, to another. So she's really picking up her own ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, so so and 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 she actually writes or, or considered a lot of Catherine Thompson's writing rubbish, you know, and actually had some fundamental disagreements with the way that she was practicing astrology because Evangeline Adams is actually composing her own astrology you know the yeah. way that she's she's going to practice so she's borrowing from a variety of different mediums as well as popular culture sure. so so i'm not ready to really say that catherine thompson was a teacher she taught her some things they become rivals and it's much more in catherine thompson's end than it is evangeline's because evangeline just like trumps Catherine Thompson, like nobody's business, and so she's one kind of the of like... one of the problems. Though one of the things that's difficult is we don't know because Evangeline one doesn't mention Catherine, even though they did mm -hmm. have some connection. So she's clearly going out of her way to omit something from her biography that otherwise should mm -hmm. have been there. And two, one of the mm -hmm. things that becomes really clear uh, from Karen's treatment of Evangeline is that Evangeline was very good at publicity. And publicizing yeah. herself, but she also had a, a noted and marked tendency to dramatize and embellish and um, tell different stories about her life that made for good, almost like good TV, but were not necessarily strictly accurate, and sometimes were just plainly inaccurate. Like her biography. And actually, you you hit on a beautiful analogy. It mm -hmm. is like TV, but make it the press. Okay, remember she's coming out of the 19th century theatricality. Remember we had those spirits in their robes, like 
peeking through. <laughs> I mean, she comes out of this kind of what we would find a cheesy, overblown, dramatic, you know, way of speaking. Mm -hmm. And and so I would venture to say one of the things she learns from Catherine Thompson is actually how to work publicity. Right. Okay, and how to work the newspapers and how to present herself because the way she presents herself is kind of similar. But where Catherine Thompson could get eccentric and opinionated and, and whatever, Evangeline was always, you know, she sort of develops this more poised and because she kind of looks schoolmarmy, you know, she's a short, sort of stoutish woman with pince nez on her on, on, on her nose. So she's not gonna win in the glamour department, but but she can win in terms of a trustworthy face, um, a, a, a way of being in which you feel like you can really talk to this person, that she really understands what's going on with you. And the readings would always be champion, championing you. You know, how can you uh, turn the forces of your chart to your advantage so that you can sort of become the best person you can be? That kind of American way of practicing astrology you know, is is very much based in 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 Evangeline, but she worked those newspapers like a reality, like a Kardashian on Twitter. You know, what I mean, like, and that would probably be one of the analogies I would draw. She knew how to pique interest, and she knew how to keep herself in the headlines. And the more she stayed in the headlines, the more people came knocking at her door. Yeah, well, and in the instances where she accidentally ended up being in the news, she knew how to capitalize on that and use it to its fullest advantage and to like increase it, the stature or the things that she would get from that far beyond what she would get if she just did nothing. Right. Um, so she had a real flair for uh, a real knack for courting the media and for, but also like the dramatic. But the part of the downside of that is you have to be a little bit careful. Reading her biography, and that some of the things you can't take purely for granted because sometimes she would embellish or, or uh, you know, I, I don't want to go as far as to say to lie, but it seems like some of the stuff that she said sometimes about her life was not necessarily accurate. Well, where Karen also talks about is you have to keep in mind her husband, who then becomes her pu publicist and manager. Later, he in does life. a he does a lot of the exaggerating, you know? Okay. Um, yeah. And so, and because he's in charge of a lot of the writing that's going on, you know, that's, that's what starts to get more exaggerated. But um, is it okay to talk about the Windsor fire? Because that's going to yeah. actually bring these two ideas together. So let's okay, talk where... about the transition point. So um, her mother dies when roughly if her dates are correct, and there's a lot of ambiguity that's really annoying about that. Cause I'd love to look at, Evangeline Adams chart, but there's actually like major disputes over what year she was even born mm -hmm. because she seems to have given different years to the census and like she given was a lady, <laughs> right? Different women years. lied about their age. <laughs> yeah, um, but but as a result of lying about her age and to different sources, like to reporters or to the census, or when she was married and there was eventually and there was like an age disparity in her relationship they lied about her age to try to close the age gap but as a result of that wasn't it like 17 years or something or, or like 20 years? 22 or something right. like that it was like, so it was like this enormous evangeline was also a cougar a cougar mama right uh so so she anyway so there's a lot of ambiguity even over what the correct year was that she was born which is is terribly annoying cuz i'd love to know for sure what her chart was um, but she may have during it may have been around the time of her Saturn return, according to what Karen thinks, Karen Christina, her biographer thinks is her birth date. 
her mother dies, and this kind of frees um, it frees Evangeline up to do what she wants to do, and she mm -hmm. ends up deciding to move to New York, which is just like this massive city in that period of time. And it's a much more like cosmopolitan city than Boston was. And she moves to New York and sets up shop there as an astrologer and right away moves into a hotel where she's going to start doing astrological consultations out of the hotel. She already has an assistant and everything else. So mm -hmm. this then brings us to one of the first really major notable documented events in her life, which is the, the hotel fire. Right. Well, what happens is that she shows up at a previous hotel, and uh, you know, and she's talking to the proprietor, and she says, "Oh, by the way, I'm going to be practicing astrology out of these rooms." And he's like, "Not on my premises." Yeah, they're like, "No, you're, so no you're he, not." He shows her the door <laughs> right off the bat, um, and then she goes on up to the Windsor Hotel, which is Fifth Avenue, maybe around Forty Seventh or Forty Fifth Street, um, which is away from the immigrant population. It's a more posh or, or established part of town. And uh, Leland, the owner of the uh, hotel, um, is delighted. He loves the fact that he's going to have an astrologer on the premises. He plays the stock market. I think he plays the horses, you know, and and so he just thinks this is an ex this is wonderful, you know. Right, and, well, and, and the way that she portrays it also is that she, when the the proprietor of the first hotel said that she couldn't practice astrology there, that she left and like took her bag and trudged. Out of there, almost as a protest, saying like, "I'm not going to stay here." Then, if you're not going to respect my, she seemed very. Um, one of the recurring themes in her biography is being very motivated to um, make astrology respectable and to be seen as a respectable, respectable for what she was doing, and that, that if people didn't, I think it's take... more she wasn't going to make any money at that place. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, we have to remember, hotel really means apartment building. Okay, right now right. we think of a hotel as guest. No, you come and you stay at a hotel, it's like renting an apartment. So it would be like your landlord saying, No, you can't do that here. You know, that's basically what, what she was told. And so she goes up to the Hotel Windsor and he loves the idea completely. And he's like, Hey, and while you're at it, why don't you read my palm? And again, it's it's important to emphasize that Evangeline is working with palms and astrology at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so she reads her palm, and mostly this is from Bowl of Heaven, uh, which which Karen uh, you know, really references in, in, in her book. But she sees Which is her evil. biography. Yeah, her, her, her autobiography. autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. So she she sees basically um in in uh, in his palm, you know, disastrous aspects. You know, and again, there's that 19th century drama coming through, you know, disastrous aspects, portending of ills, you know, sort of thing. And then she consults the chart and says, you know, it's actually very imminent. It's, it's going to happen very, very soon, like maybe even on the morrow, you know. And he's like, well, it can't be that bad because tomorrow's a holiday. It's St. Patrick's Day and the stock market's closed, so I'm not going to lose any money, you know. And she's like, well, you know, beware, you know, is basically the message. Yeah. And, and what and, happens. And the one part of that story that, is interesting because it sounds kind of like one of those fantastical like astrology stories that's like embellished to some extent, but you're never sure how much or if this actually mm -hmm. did happen or if it happened exactly the way that it's reported. But one mm -hmm. of the little pieces that I do find interesting that almost gives it a little bit more uh, more believability than I might have otherwise is she does make this point where she asks them in her reporting of it that she asked him, she said this aspect or whatever it was that she was looking at that is coming up 
that hits goes exact tomorrow, it looks like you it's happened two other times in the past, and that she mm-hmm. then asked what happened during those times, and he couldn't really remember anything significant, just something about maybe there was a small fire or something at his establishment uh, one or both of those times, but that was it. Mm-hmm. And they sort of brush it off and, and then go about their day. Right. Um, right. Which is her unpacking and him checking out his hotel. Um, but the following day is St. Patrick's Day. And so they're having a St. Patrick's Day parade. And again, he uh, mistakenly believed no disaster because he was thinking stocks. Everyone uh, in New York City at this time, everything's stock market, which also plays a role in how fortune telling uh, is treated as 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 its own special animal, and 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 the great lengths that they go to distinguish the difference between stock market uh, 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 calculation and fortune telling, because a lawyer working the right angle could turn stock market prophecy uh, into fortune telling and 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 arrest people on, on Wall Street for that, you know. So so that's why the law was so very particular in 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 New York. But anyway, everything's stock market. And so he's like, oh, it's closed. It's not going to be a disaster. Um the parade's going up Fifth Avenue. I mean, I've lived in New York. I know what those I know what those St. Patrick Day's parades up Fifth Avenue are like. And a fire breaks out in the Windsor. Um and immediately uh and 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 Karen says that the suspicion is that there was a fellow watching the parade who Throw out his cigar or cigarette, and, and it didn't go out, you know, and 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 it catches fire, and basically the whole ho- hotel and fires back then, as Karen also points out in her book, were a huge deal because it was very easy for buildings to catch fire and to be burned down to the ground and maybe even take out a city block, you right. know. So so with this fire starting and this parade going on, you can sort of begin to imagine the panic. On, on Fifth Avenue. And so Evangeline and her assistant leave because she's on the ground floor. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, it was the most disastrous fire in the history of New York. Over, over 60 people died in it. Yeah, and so the, like a, the a press was people. all over it. The press a- was all over it. They were interviewing survivors and things like that. You know, how did you survive? And they were telling tales of of these great people who'd sacrificed things or who died miserably or whatever. Because the the press at this point is very sensationalistic. It's like National Enquirer is all the different presses. And so they hear about this woman who had predicted, you know, I don't know exactly how that got out, but they found Evangeline. Um uh, Windsor, uh, the, or Leland is completely in shock. He l- loses his wife and a daughter in the fire. He's completely traumatized. Um, but she's, and this shows up as part of Evangeline. She's, um, she's taking interviews. You know, she's, she's, <laughs> she's telling her story. She'd seen it in the palm. It had happened in astrology or whatever. And so I think the New York Herald picks up on that. And then other newspapers come calling, and she's telling them the same story. At, at one point, I think uh, uh, Leland confirms it vaguely as or whatever. So it just takes off. So what we're also dealing with is someone who was not shy about doing PR based mm. on the misfortune of someone else. So, well, and that know, was a point that was ambiguous to me because yeah. it's like in some reports she's saying, "I." can't say anything without the permission of my client, but then in others, it seems like she's talking to the press. So there's some sort of ambiguity to me about how much, like to what extent the story was confirmed by Leland, the owner of the hotel, 
who is he lost his wife and his daughter as well as that the entire building burned down and like 60 people died and he's mm -hmm. goes into a state of shock and like dies like 3 weeks later so he's not yeah. even around for that long after this terrible event to say a ton um but for whatever she reason takes, she takes advantage of it well, you for know, whatever and, reason, in the press, she does get this, and in the tabloids, we should say she gets this reputation for having predicted it, and this does mm -hmm. really make her very popular, or really leads to an explosion of notoriety in New York at this time. And she yes. moves over, and then sets up shop, sets up consultations elsewhere, and from this point forward, she's like firmly established in New York as like a practicing significant she's, she's becoming more established what karen points out and i think it's a it's a it's a great point is that she then writes an astrological forecast for new york city mm. in 1899 that appears in a newspaper i'm not sure if that would have been allowed for instance across the pond in england you know that a that a that a, a, a commercial newspaper would publish a forecast about a city but she does a forecast for the city of new york it's in like the Sunday supplemental section, but she's the headline of it with a photograph and page or two of her forecast. So she's gone from like, who's this person who predicted this fire to now she's, you know, the Sybil of New York City. <laughs> you know, she's the CRS of, of New York City. And that's what sets her forward where she's meeting with the glitterati, the celebrities of Broadway, the well-to-do, as well as people who are working class and can afford it. You know, she would, she, and, and there's kind of an in, inclination that she might have worked on a sliding scale, uh, scale as well. So this is what really launches her. But what we also have to remember is that she also knew how to take advantage of it. And she worked it, that, that forecast for uh, the Windsor uh, fire ends up appearing in England in both Modern Astrologer and another astrology magazine. Well, right. she's the one who sent that press material over there. So this yeah. was a woman who was going to take advantage of these opportunities. Well, she sends like Leland's chart and she sends a chart of like New York or something to exactly. Safariel exactly. or to whoever's publishing those magazines as almost like a research document saying, Look into the. This is the chart, and these were the indications. Um, you know, there's things I think we should learn and take from this this tragedy that are empirically right. useful as as working astrologers. And I want to share this with you. And I don't know how much that's yeah. purely you know, almost scientific versus how much that's promotional. It's uh, both. Yeah, it's both. It's both. She had to make a living. You know, she didn't have a husband. There was no one to fall back on. She had to make a living, so it's both. What? You know, which I think is a good thing to keep in mind about her story. This was someone who was intrepid and mm -hmm. enterprising, you know, and, you know, we might say, oh, you know, how horrible or whatever. But, you know, if you've got to put food on the table and 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 make a living, that's, you know, this is what she was taking out of all those years of taking care of her mother, you know, was, you know, you, you, you I'm, I'm in charge of me, you know, so I have to have to make a living with something like this. So that was always in the background as well. Yeah, and you mentioned um, the prediction for 1899, and so that was good that you mentioned that because that I forgot to mention the dates. We're talking like 1898, 1899-ish for her move to New York, right? 1899, I think, I, I believe. 98, 99, yeah, I'm just repeating you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, from this point forward, she gets fully established in New York. 
Um, eventually, she sets up a, a residence at like Carnegie Hall or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I've gone and seen the offices. I mean, they're not hers anymore, but mm -hmm. I've gone into Carnegie Hall and seen it. Uh, we know of Carnegie Hall is where musicians play and, and things like that. But on the um, south side of the building are actually studio apartments and, and suites. I don't know if they're that anymore. Uh, but they were at that time uh, when Carnegie Hall first opened. So they would have the Symphony Hall and then they would rent out apartments. And those apartments were usually taken by musicians or artists and things like that. So there's this kind of like well-to-do bohemian life, you know, that she's like rubbing shoulders with. It was like when I was living in the East Village and in, in, I just dated myself the 80s, you know, the, you know, the, everyone is up and coming, you know, and and they hadn't yet quite arrived. And so this is kind of like, where she's practicing astrology. So she goes from like two uh, two uh, studio uh, rooms in Carnegie Hall that, and she stays in Carnegie Hall the rest of her career to ending up with, I think it's six suites on the 10th floor. You know, yeah. I mean, that's how much her army of, of, of typists and, and, and things like that had, had expanded. So that's where she sets up. And I believe that that's in 1904. Well, and that's one of the cool things early on about, to me about her, moved to New York as she was kind of like a badass and she um yeah. <laughs> took rented out like these nice places. Like the the hotel that burned down was a super nice place that she went to. And the first hotel that she had attempted to go to on Fifth Avenue was also a super nice place. Um and then even eventually the place that she ends up settling into in Carnegie Hall was a super nice, you know, residence and office. And so part of that was her Part of the like a class thing, but also her presenting and wanting to present herself as being respectable and successful and and trustworthy, and yes. she would ha see just like tons of clients and do tons of consultations and start to um, meet with and have very well to do clients in in New York City. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's why she that's why she becomes kind of like this. Local Sibel, you know this this prophetess, and 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 why she's so well known because New York at this time is also, remember, it's the center of publishing, you know. I mean, you've got some competing newspapers in Chicago, San Francisco, but New York is really the center of publishing. So if you're hitting, you know, if you're getting an interview in a paper, or whatever, you've got newspaper syndicates starting right now around McClure, uh, the McClure Syndicate. So it's like the late nineteenth century. And so these news items are going outside of New York and they're spreading across the country. And so, you know, again, this is what's bringing the notoriety and the fame. But again, she's very careful, and this is what saves her, helps her with her trial. But she's very careful to cultivate this learned, established, um, you know, I look at the chart dispassionately, you know, like peeking over her glasses, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, image. You know, and again, you know, even though she wasn't glamorous or particularly beautiful looking, uh, that worked to her advantage as well because she was she kind of looks like Miss Marple from the Agatha Christie you know, <laughs> mysteries or something. You know, someone like you know someone you can rely on and trust. You know, salt of the earth. Type yeah, of I think like somebody maybe it was Karen refers to almost as like your wise aunt who's giving mm -hmm. you like advice or something. And yeah. so she's doing consultations. She's set up in New York, but then eventually. She does run into problems and eventually runs afoul of the law at one point mm -hmm. or at two distinct points in the 19 teens. 
three. <laughs> three, <laughs> yeah, anyway, three eventually. There's a third one too. <laughs> right. So the yes. first time she's um, arrested and she's busted for fortune telling, but that one is quickly dismissed. But mm -hmm. then the second time in 1914, there is a sting that the police do, and they have a undercover officer go in and do a, and get a consultation, and mm -hmm. then afterwards she's arrested and mm -hmm. charged with anti-fortune telling laws, which were still on the books in New York at mm -hmm. that time. And mm -hmm. there was a s serious, like it was not a light matter. It was like a serious threat to her where. She could have faced it was something like what six months or six years in prison and like a huge I fine. I think it was more this. The, it was more the steep fine. Um, it, it, it was more the steep fine. The magistrate's court, um, first of all, where these fortune tellers were brought in, uh, as I referenced earlier, was really more like a circus than it was a draconian affair. You know, um, there was one mentalist, for instance, who um, is brought in and asked to demonstrate his abilities. And he actually names the judge's third grade teacher and tells the judge how much money he's got in his bank account. And the judge is like, I can't, you know, uh, charges are dropped. That's the amount of money in my bank account. And that was indeed my third grade teacher. And how did you know that? Mm -hmm. You know, or there was another fellow who had a parrot, you know, who would, who would sort of like bob and weave around this hat. You know, and there were a bunch of cards in it, and he would go abracadabra and hocus pocus. And the parrot went and took out a card, and he takes the card from the parrot's beak and says, "Your fortunes will soon improve." And the judge was so amused by that that he let him go. So, so the thing is, it wasn't always this kind of draconian thing. It was actually kind of funny, you know. And and if you actually put on a good show as a fortune teller, and maybe were even accurate, you could get off, you know. And then they'd see you again six months later. So basically, fortune tellers were basically the same class as prostitutes, uh, which were also persecuted under the vagrancy law. So many yeah. of them, we had seen them again, and they'd gotten out or whatever. So it wasn't when I think really we should, horrible. I, I don't know. I think we should be careful not to downplay this too much, because it seems like a major thing in her no, biography, no, 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 and no. I'm, it was I'm a major not... threat to her. Um, like this, wasn't, this was a serious um, yeah, charge. But 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 at the same time i have the newspaper articles that describe all these different cases you know so so the thing is you know the, it's it's one thing to focus on the figure and then it's also another thing which i do in the way that i look at history is to also focus on the culture by going to the newspapers and seeing what the accounts and the reports were it becomes a big deal for evangeline i mean i think what karen really characterizes very well in the book is that evangeline found it unsettling Okay, she found it unsettling, and she was disturbed by this. But the culture of the court was actually, you know, it could be funny and then it could be serious, you know. So it went back and forth in that in that regard. And if you want, I can certainly produce the newspaper articles that that describe this. What happens in Evangeline's case is that she challenges it because she recognizes a PR opportunity. Okay, well, that if she, sure. if she if she challenges this. Okay, this is going to make the papers. And that's where either she leaks or insinuates or whatever that she is a direct descendant of President John Adams and President John Quincy Adams of the United States. Mm -hmm. And that becomes wildfire in the press. 
Okay, now Karen is very, very careful and she bends over backwards saying, well, she didn't really say this. Da, 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 da. The headlines are saying it and where did they get it from? Okay, but, you know, and, and that's, you know, where Karen and I can have wonderful and intriguing conversation about that. But that's what made the headlines. And I've got the newspaper articles that are leading with those headlines. And so this is what generates publicity. You have to remember, she's always looking on the PR end as well. But she also has an opportunity to prove astrology is a science. Okay. And that's what's really important about this court trial. And that's what it becomes very uh, well known for. Well, because um, that's how she spins it in retrospect. Like after the fact, once she spins it, she spins it as a great victory for astrology. And as she yes. tries to spin it as demonstrating that astrology is a science. But prior right. to it, this was like an existential threat to her. Like her entire yeah. income was based on doing consultations. And suddenly she got arrested for doing consultations and threatened with six months in jail and a huge I fine. Think you're, uh, yeah, I'm not sure where the six months, maybe you're absolutely right with that. I mean, what, I, I literally just what read, you're it, bringing, read it last night. Okay, okay. What you're so, bringing to mind to me is William Cheney, who actually did do time in jail. Okay. He, right. he actually really did do time in jail. So that's um, not, Evangeline that's not inconsequential, like an astrologer. No, but you could, you could, you could buy your way out of it, and they did. That's okay. what I, that that's the point that I'm making. You could you could make a deal to buy your way out of it. Okay. Um, she she opts to make a stand. Okay, and she's not going to buy her way out of it, you know. But I do have to represent the fact that many people bought their way out of it, and that's why they would show up in court and be gone, show up in court again. I mean, okay, that's that the thing, though, is that this could have gone either way, it seems like, for her. And she kind of got lucky in that she didn't, that it didn't go the opposite way, and that she wasn't convicted of fortune telling. But um, no, she didn't get lucky. She did an extraordinary case. She did an no. extraordinary case. If, no, I mean, Chris, I re reading the testimony and reading Karen, the, her biographer's treatment of it, it seemed like she ended up with a sympathetic judge. And no, it, it came down Chris, to this. Chris, I've got the transcripts here. Yeah, okay. I read, the, I read of, the transcripts. Okay. And if you look at the transcripts, she proves, she, she does not have to prove that astrology is a science. What she has to prove is that she's not engaging in any sort of supernatural agency to come at what she's saying. Okay, that's in, what she in has fortune to prove. Telling. Right, in fortune telling. Right, exactly. exactly. But it all, it all hinges on what is fortune telling. Right. And fortune telling, uh, fortune telling is a very, very vague description. Right. Okay. If you look at the, don't look at the 1967 fortune telling law. Um, and Karen and I have gone through great pains to actually find the actual law from 1914. Okay. But the actual fortune telling law is extremely vague. It refers to pretending to fortunes and finding lost items. That's the line for fortune telling. Okay, everything off of that was people's perceptions of it. Okay, and that would depend on the judge or the magistrate that the person was being brought up in front of. By her saying, I'm going to show that this is a science. Now, in Evangeline Adams's mind, she was proving that this was a science. Okay, but if you look at the court transcripts, Freshie is very careful about noting the fact that um, she goes through a very long and drawn out process where she is referring to books and statistics and records in which she was talking about how the planetary placements could be interpreted 
uh, this way. Um, and But at no point does she say, this is going to happen on this date. That's what makes her different from the Malcolm case, which was also an astrologer in Palmist in, in 1915, who's arrested. And Malcolm comes out and says, on this date, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and that this is going to happen. And that's why Malcolm actually gets hit with a very, very uh, steep fine. But Evangeline Adams was able to say, this is the inclination, this could happen as a possibility based on these signs that I'm looking at in, in, in uh, the stars. And so what Freshy went off of, um, and it's very interesting in the way that he sizes up the argument for two points. One of the things that he talks about is the understanding that exists between the person who's performing the service and the person who is being served. If both people have an agreed upon understanding that astrology is interpreting signs from the stars, and so the consumer has a reasonable expectation that that's what's going to take place, then that moves it from fortune telling into actually a transactional business, okay? But what he was impressed by was the long list of history, the exhausting system that she went to to arrive at this, which she replicates uh, in the trial, and then there's a third thing, um, which I really want to make as a point, which is very, very important. Um, at the uh, end of uh, uh, his uh, summation, um, he's, he's okay, for, there's, two, there's two statements that are really important. One is, the defendant's counsel, counsel stated in his brief that astrology was an applied science in that it takes the established principles of astronomy as its guide in delineating human character and all of its judgments are based on mathematical calculations. She successfully right. demonstrated that. But this is the way he ends it and it's fascinating. He says, Freshy says, no doubt, no doubt many, many years ago for anyone to have attempted to say that the confirmation of the head of that the physiognomy of a creature determined the character of the individual, and that such and such a type would someday turn out to be a criminal, would have been guilty of fortune telling. But the history of specific, uh, but the history of specifics has furnished us with a working basis for these new theories that nowadays seem to be accepted by criminologists and the public in general. I highlight that because at the time of her trial. There was the, Berti, uh, the Bertillon method, which was being used to measure body parts like skull size and limbs to determine criminal behavior um, and identity. That was in widespread use at the time. It went out of uh, fashion because of its connection with eugenics. And then secondly, the practice of collecting fingerprints introduced as recently as 1903 to the New York state prison system was by 1914, just beginning to catch on with police departments around the country. So Freshie's point was that it was not so far-fetched that astrology or even palmistry for that matter, might not at some point be re recast in a more serious light thanks to the emerging science of psychology. So right. that's the way Freshie was, was, was looking at it. Yeah, there was ambiguity where maybe it could still be a science and she demonstrated that it was based on astronomy and she also came off as like a respectable middle to upper class woman who was not some like mystic who was like doing a seance or pretending to talk to the dead. She was actually calculating charts based on an ephemeris and then making statements based on that, which mm -hmm. she in the trial goes to great lengths to emphasize that she was qualifying her statements and she was not treating it 
as being completely deterministic so that whatever mm -hmm. statement she make is ca is couched in the sense of this will definitely happen to you but instead that this was simply a possible indication so there was mm -hmm. this whole weird subtext of determinism versus free will and signs versus causes which which is an interesting like 2000 year long recurring theme and issue in astrological mm -hmm. discussions mm -hmm. and somehow becomes crucial in this trial but the problem is that astrology in subsequent de decades by the 60s and 70s would end up not becoming validated by science and so that was the point where it could have gone either way for Evangeline is all she was able to do is like kind of convince this judge that it could quasi become validated at a science at some point and therefore might not just be fortune telling but in reality she was still kind of doing fortune telling in some sense depending on how well, you define fortune telling the freshie story is fascinating first of all um, most of the people who were brought in, being brought in for fortune telling were immigrants okay right that, and that was and a, Freshie, that was an underlying like thing that i got from this as well oh, yeah. is that she was a, a affluent educated like white woman and that was part of what he not resonated with but that's part of the he he judged her more favorably as a result of that whereas if she oh, hadn't been oh, well no what i would like to throw into that soup is that freshy is a first uh first generation italian his okay. parents are immigrants and what was so his he, full name again because this is the judge but i don't think we stated that explicitly uh the full name i i'm sorry i'm like, just going by his last name but it's 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 freshy i can so magistrate freshy yeah, he is first generation um, Italian. John John J. Freshy. Yes, yes, he's first generation Italian. So first of all, he's already got a sympathy towards immigrants. Okay. Right. Um, secondly, he um, it's a police woman who sets up the sting, and he doesn't he doesn't really like how that went down that she's saying that she made all these statements or whatever and he's like well i'm having a five to ten minute conversation with miss adams and she can't get through a sentence without referring to a saturn or a uranus or whatever you know conjunction it's like there's an elaborate system here that she's referencing you know and so he felt that the po the police woman um who was under uh teddy roosevelt was being disingenuous that she was not giving a proper account of of what that was freshy was fascinating he uh there's one case in which um this uh iww protester says that he lost his he 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 got passionate and got into a brawl or whatever during a street political protest because he has an artistic temperament and said and freshy said well what makes you artistic and he says i, I write poetry and he's like okay well why don't you read some of your poetry out loud for me so i can judge how artistic your temperament is so first he had this side to him that was really he was curious and playful and but also could be very you know uh stern or whatever so he was very much intrigued by the evangeline adams walks away feeling she had converted him to her side no he was intrigued actually by the judicial and philosophical argument that uh, that was that was going on here with astrology and when you take into account that there were these techniques that were coming out where they're measuring people's skulls and looking at fingerprints, 
you know, he talks about physiognomy, which is astrological. That's the reading of the face. I mean, he refers to it in the trial transcript. So, and he's saying, you know, years ago, a physiognomist would have been called a fortune teller, but now we call it psychology. That's what he's saying when he adds, when he, when he's summing up. So, which again, in, in retrospect, like physiognomy is, is viewed as a discredited method of fortune telling at this point and not scientific in any way. So, right. But at that time, right. he was, he was, this was the culture. And so these were the ideas that he was. So he, what he comes across to my reading, and history is always about interpreting, it's like a chart, but is that he's actually very intrigued by her argument and kind of annoyed, you know, the way that this is being set up. And right. so his feeling is if she's going to make a convincing argument that it is an applied science, and she does, and she gets off for it. Well, and she, know? in the transcripts, like she's very, um, clearly coached because she ends up they delay the trial and like oh, her, yeah. her defend her lawyer says i need time to study astrology in order to properly defend this case and the judge is like fine whatever so they schedule it for six months later so she has like six months to prepare and clearly in the transcripts when they start asking her specifics about what was said or what was not said in the consultation she mm -hmm. comes back with a lot of what seems like clearly coached like i don't remember statements but then saying i wouldn't have stated it that way when presented with specific statements that the undercover officer says that she made that were like specific predictions and then she mm -hmm. always sort of subtly twists each of the statements to be slightly less deterministic and slightly more open ended in terms of whatever predictions she did or did not end up making that day well and she and chris let's face it she had fabulous optics you know, she comes in with a stack of books and she's opening up books and she's referring to this and she's referring to the British librarian who, you know, is referencing the number of charts that um, predict deaths by accident. So, I mean, remember, this is her her education from Smith, uh, from Dr. Smith coming through. You know, she, she, by saying, okay, I didn't say this, but this British librarian who's a historian or whatever says in this book, and she opens up the book, and in the book it lists what would cause an accidental death. And she's like, that's the reference, that's the source. Right. Okay, so so this is the stuff that is persuading the judge that, okay, this isn't woo-woo-woo, this is someone who's actually learned and consulting books. And, and I may not understand the language, you know, I can't get through, you know, uh, asking her a couple of questions without sitting through a long lecture about Jupiter, but She's getting this information from a source and it's in books and it's showing it, it is proving it as an applied science. And this is actually what's always made astrology different from the other occult sciences. You had to be literate. You had to be literate, book read, mm -hmm. to be an astrologer. You did not have to be book read to be a palmist or a channeler or you know, whatever. But if you were an astrologer, you had to be able to read a book. And yeah. you had to be able to do mathematics and do and that's tri tri been... trigonometry in order to like calculate yeah. charts. Yeah, and this is what she demonstrated. So for someone looking at this, this isn't you know woodoo or my parrot's taking a little card out of the hat or you know or or I'm going to like guess the amount of money in your bank. This is someone who's demonstrating an applied science, and that's exactly why she why the charges against her are dropped. But she also gets this extraordinary PR from it. And it also sure. feeds her mission, which is to make astrology um, you know, acceptable in society. I mean, this is always also a big part of her 
there's a reason why she's Evangeline, evangelist, the word of God, you know, she's speaking the word of astrology, you know, maybe she had a sun and joy in the ninth, I don't know, but, sure. you know, but she's, but, you know, this is her mission. So she ends up, though, getting off of the um, charge of fortune telling partially because she's able to at least convey the pretense that she's doing like some sort of scientific stuff that's based on book learning and based on astronomy and she's not just pulling it out of thin air um and the judge is impressed by this even though like ultimately though if you think about like what she's using that for is she's still making statements about whether a person will get married whether a person will encounter career success whether they will have children and other things like that which and all honestly she's not like naming that the yeah, she's not naming the date, and that actually becomes the big difference between her and that other trial that I uh, referenced a number of moments ago. I mean, um, she, but anyway, but she's still engaged in in honesty and fortune telling, and somehow she still gets off because she's able to like convey that there's other like scientific materials sort of connected with this, and the mm -hmm. judge, for whatever reason, buys it and gives this judgment that it's not fortune telling I, and she did not Chris, break the law i hate to disagree but i don't th i think the uh, the judge is impressed he believes it he I believes mean, her karen you know, says he, karen says that in her opinion she thought the judge might have been favorably inclined from the start and seems lenient if if well, she had gotten where yeah, so that I, if she had gotten I, a different judge it could have gone a different way oh absolutely no, I think she happened to be lucky and she got a great judge who mm -hmm. was that intellectual, honestly. You know, you have to be an intellectual to sort of like sit through the demonstration of this. Mm -hmm. Judge Frischi would have people demonstrate. I mean, as I, you know, I can do a few more stories. I'm not going to go on about it, but he would, you know, people would make these claims and then Judge Frischi would say, okay, demonstrate this. How are, you know, if you have an artistic temperament, read some poetry to me and I'm going to see how artistic you are. Right. So, so this is his attitude. This is, you know, the judge, but I don't think there was some conspiracy or paying off or anything along those lines. I think she happened to be lucky that she pulled this judge. Uh, Clark L. Jordan, um, who is her attorney, um, ten, no, uh, t t t 12, 12 years later, uh, defends another astrologer, you know, uh, doing using the same method. And that sure. astrologer gets off as well. And I think she's the president of the New York Astrological Society or, or something like that. So Jordan, curiously, you know, actually takes more cases uh, uh, like this. So it, it had become a way of really, and that's not Judge Freshy, Chris, that's a different judge. And mm -hmm. Jordan used the same techniques and the woman ended up with the same ruling. Mm -hmm. So that kind of like doesn't go with the judge being, you know, whatever. I mean, this this was a successful technique and it worked twice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I because part of my issue is that later later in the 20th century, astrology runs in, in the early 21st century, as recently as the 2000s, astrology yeah. has run into issues with the law again. But instead of trying to demonstrate that astrology is a science, astrologers have generally gotten off due to free speech laws and freedom of religion type right. laws rather than attempts to demonstrate the validity or scientific nature of astrology. Um, yes, um, although that was embryonic. Um, there is a case from uh, 1919 where uh, someone is brought in for fortune telling and, and it's a spiritualist. The person's channeling a spirit. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they're trying to make the same thing apply. And actually, the person is let off for freedom of religion and freedom of, of, of belief. Okay. So what happens is that in 1967, the law becomes reworded in New York 
to become much more specific and to talk about um, spirit agencies, you know, yeah. supernatural agencies. And that, curiously enough, because it always gets back to immigration, is targeted at, at the uh, uh, Santeria community and the uh, voodoo, the, the uh, uh, community. And so, you know, it's and, and so it's being targeted there to go after people who who invoke supernatural agencies and and things along those lines. And so that mover shift was made in 1967. Right now, currently, we have what I sort of compare to as the don't ask, don't tell policy. If you say that you're an entertainer or, you know, this is for entertainment. Yeah. What is know. the law in New York really concisely? Because New York's one of those you weird states or cities where astrologers do have to say that astrology, this is for entertainment purposes only, and they have to have some sort of disclaimer when they're advertising astrological services. Yeah. It has to appear on your website. Yeah. Okay. For entertainment only, or, or you say it. And what they're, again, what they're trying to do is get away from people who are like, you know, um, you know, it's, it, it's, targeted it's targeted for those occult practices and this is kind of the irony but it's a, targeted for those occult practices that don't have a strict regimen mm -hmm. like astrology does right. <laughs> you know astrology does have a regimen there's a discipline there's a practice you could have three astrologers they might disagree about things or whatever but you're going to come up with three generally same things mm -hmm. and so astrology has always been able to prove whether you believe in the system or not that it's systemized. That's sure. what makes astrology different from these other um, occult practices. And, and so that's where they brought in supernatural agencies. And, and if you think about it, Chris, that's actually a distinction to make it different from astrology. Because, you know, as an astrologer, you're not, you know, I, I don't think that you would bring in a supernatural agency, you know, to, to, to read a chart, you would follow a very uh, set, set, set system to do that. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, that's a whole discussion in of itself. When you get into I know, like, I know, like I know, in, I know. Intuitive <laughs> astrology or channelers or what have you, but I know, uh, I know, so we but have. Let's talk really quickly about timing here. So we have, yeah. I think, fifteen minutes left. You said you can go until two thirty, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Is that yeah. definite? Because yeah. I'm going I'm to structure the rest of our time based on if we only have fifteen minutes left, these are the points we need to hit. So are you that... pushing? Are you pushing for more? <laughs> yeah. Well, we just, we only just got up to the trial, and she lived for another fifteen something years. So I just want to make sure we hit one of them. I want to hit. So she got the trial. The trial set New York precedent. Um, she uh -huh. starts wanting. She hired. She gets a bunch of assistants. She gets really famous at this point. She does use this victory for PR purposes to to validate her astrological work. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe even overplays that a little bit by saying that it like raised astrology to the status of a science. Overplays uh, it tremendously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So she spins it. She's having a hardcore spin after she has the victory. Um, mm -hmm. She does want to start writing a book, and she has some failed attempts to write a book. One of which was really super fascinating, and there's a whole great chapter on it in Ken Cristino's book. Is a short-lived uh, partnership, business partnership with the occultist Alistair Crowley. And yes. he ends up helping to write for like a couple of years um, large portions of what would eventually be published in, in two of her later astrology books, right? Is it a couple of years? I thought it was a summer. It was, I was just rereading like this one and the, the OTO one that was republished, and they seemed to say it was extended for, for the, the majority of it was that summer, but it was mm -hmm. extended over into two different calendar years. Okay, prop proofs and, and and things like that. Yeah, yeah. He, he was basically a ghostwriter for her, right? Um, and 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 um, Evangeline Adams was not a writer. It's it's pretty clear. Um, uh, uh, the books that came out were either recycled written materials that had been sent out for the mail order, 
um, uh, 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 horoscopes that she had done. Uh, she might have come up with that original material, but it's looking more and more like she was working with other people or used to hiring people to write this material. I think she probably dictated, probably, you know, told the person what she wanted to see and probably also reviewed copy, you know, and things like that. But um, yeah, and we, and we should I don't, be careful because there's almost a misconception that it's a completely because his pieces of the book were republished in like 2003 under the title mm -hmm. The General Principles of Astrology right. uh, under the name Aleister Crowley with Evangeline Adams. And this takes right. um, material that was definitely his contribution and turns it into a full book. But there were pieces right. that were definitely her contribution and her exactly. words. Yeah. And their writing styles and their way of approaching astrology were so distinct that you really can tell the difference between them at different points. Oh, it's 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 remarkably different, you know. Um, but what I'm also trying to distinguish, for instance, bowl of heaven, um, astrology, your place uh, uh, in the stars. Um, Those are you her know, two the, the, main instructional astrology. There's books. a there's a third there's astrology for everyone, you know. Okay. And these are written with hired writers. Um, the only reason I go into this is because she was looking at Aleister Crowley as a hired writer, right. uh, you know, basically a hired hand. And he needed the um, money. He was like visiting the United States, but then he ended up like being broke and like needed work. And one of his skills was being a really good writer. Chris, he needed money because he's a drug addict. Sure. <laughs> okay, he's a junkie. Yeah. He needs money. He was going through money constantly. He had a huge reputation in in Europe for this. And he comes to America and he's trying to like make a clean thing of it or whatever, but he's he's on the drugs and, and so this is affecting Ernest Hemingway does a whole depiction of him. Um it's it's this quick little street portrait that he does in Movable Feast, you know, where he's basically described as a junkie. I mean, so Alistair Crowley needed money because he had a big drug habit. Um now he believed that drugs would you know, he's ahead of the 60s in this regard, and that he believed that drugs would alter consciousness and open him up for magical abilities and things like this. But um, of the two, I think he actually comes from the from the affluent family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he certainly came from a much more affluent family than Evangeline. I'm doing some lucky or educational guessing with this, but I would imagine she was impressed by the fact that he was British, you know, and, and everything British, you know, made a very strong impression with her. Karen talks about that in the book, like, you know, with the king and, and things like that. And she often visited England. Um, and I think, quite frankly, what it gets down to is she was super busy. Um, she was busy uh, with her clients and socializing and evenings at the theater and things like that. So she gave him basically the keys to the summer house. She had right. two of them, you know, and said, you have X amount of time to write this book. And there was an agreement or an understanding that her name goes on it and his doesn't. Um, and, and I'm sure that he signed something along those lines. And uh, he wrote this. And in, uh, in, a, in this astrology book, her stuff sort of shows up. And you can see that's very different because his is more, you know, we're going to, his is a little bit more uh, Alan Leo-esque in a way, you know, it's like we're going to look at these personalities and da, 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 and things along those lines. And hers is more like, you know, this is how you put it to use or, or whatever. It's much more down to earth. Right, because he had so, some background in astrology and he had probably had a lot of book learning in astrology up to that point. But she was more the, she'd been a consulting astrologer for years at that point. So her contribution would have been 
being able to convey some of that sort of acquired knowledge that you get from like years and years of seeing tons of clients. And she had developed an American astrology. She had developed an astrology which was an Evangeline Adams astrology, mm -hmm. and it's and so it's not the British school. You know, it's not. You know, if you, I mean, it's just like in dance, you've got balancing, and then you have the British school. You have you know very different types of balletic discipline and, and style, and so you have that in astrology as well. And I think although that although she this, wasn't like unfamiliar with British astrology because she did tra oh, travel to the UK and she bought like Alan Leo books, who was a contemporary of hers. Uh, he's. I think he's. She's coming. She's rising at the time when I think he's fading. I think because yeah, I think I mean, he's his his court case. His big one is in like eighteen in nineteen fourteen as well, which is the same year as her. And then he died a few years later. And so she. she Rises. She, I mean, she, she lived like fifteen years longer than him, so he was a slightly yeah. older contemporary. Yeah, yeah, and and the thing is, no, she was very much. And uh, Karen, I think, even said that uh, she had William Lilly in her library as well. So there's definite familiarity with the British style, but I think that the PR, you know, how you know, being the headline winner, talking mm -hmm. to the newspapers, I think that also very much craft. Her voice as an astrologer, you know, um, and 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 crafts her style, mm -hmm. you know, because I think Crowley makes a big point that she doesn't even know basic astronomy, you know, like she's talking about the science of astrology or whatever, and she doesn't even know basic astronomy or something like that. Well, and that and, was that was part of. We have to be careful with that because he they had a huge falling out, and then the, he was like super like a dick to her afterwards, and she basically just like erases him from her life and never mentions him again. Whereas he like writes this whole screed against her um, in some journal article in like 1917, and then he, in his like autobiography, he says terrible things about her and says that she ripped him off and all this other stuff. Uh, some of which is actually interesting, seeing like his perspective on things. And unfortunately, we never see her perspective because her response well, is just to, like never mention him. You know why? Why? You know why? She just did a Catherine Thompson. Right. With him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's actually a really interesting point because that comes up with other yeah. astrologers and other biographies where sometimes when there's somebody or there's an astrologer who's clearly influenced by somebody, but they don't mention them, like almost like not mentioning somebody as a source or as somebody that you were influenced by or had major interactions with says more and says something almost as significant as mentioning that person. Well, it's conspicuous. It's a it's a conspicuous absence, right? You know, and and so I think, and maybe we 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 just sort of stumbled upon the way that she dealt with things that she didn't like. Yeah, and <laughs> and then also, but that she sometimes hired different writers to help with projects, and they didn't get credit either. So one of the things we have to be careful about is like when we mention the name Alistair Crowley, like he there's mm -hmm. all this built up, you know, over the past century behind that. Whereas right. he was just like this ghostwriter that she hired for like a, a year or two, who she had this huge falling out with. So he wasn't necessarily like the Aleister Crowley at that point. Um, no, I, I think it's the twenties. So no, he is the Aleister Crowley because he's already well, done it's... his deal with the Golden Dawn and been a bugbear for William Butler Yeats and and all that kind of business. That's already, I believe, taken place at this point, or, or well, would have recently not, taken place. Not the twenties. We're talking about like nineteen fourteen, nineteen fifteen, nineteen sixteen. When I thought the book was around nineteen. Uh, okay, then then this is then that would be following. Sorry, my Golden Dawn history. I apologize ahead of time, but I believe that follows on the heels of the falling out 
with the Golden Dawn and William Butler Yeats. It's yeah. going to be around. It's going to be around that period of time. So, so anyways, they have their falling out. But what's bizarre is she doesn't like. She doesn't end up taking that material until like a decade later, and then cobbles it together with some other stuff in order to publish these two books. Well, the thing is, this is what I would sort of submit as an idea for any astrologer who keeps a blog, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, you can write about these pieces or whatever, or you can do these predictions or whatever, whatever, but. The internet is such a demanding taskmaster, you know, in terms of 24-7, that at some point you might be repurposing, reusing. You might be wondering if you should repurpose or reuse or, or something along those lines. Evangeline Adams was spending most of her time, um, she only consulted in the afternoon from like 12 to 6 or 7 or something like that. But in the morning, she was going over, you know, what was going out of those male horoscopes and looking over copy and, and things along those lines. So this, I think, was really much more the focus for her. So I yeah. have, it's a different idea of looking at it, but I think she gave this guy some money and here's the keys to my house. You've got a nice British accent and you're kind of like, you know, intriguing guy. Write yeah. this stuff for me. The agreement is that you're a ghostwriter, hand it in on time and ta-ta, you know, and it didn't work out that way. And he got really, you know, he, he has a, a drug addict's reaction to things. Sorry, I'm just going to say that. You know, and and I think that she probably was like, someone deal with this. Right. <laughs> well, well, and, and then she and just went on and was busy and had a successful career because she's she seen had tons a whole of life and career that was going on. She didn't have time for bad boys and and these misadventures. Sure, and that's probably why her book also took so long to do, get out. Eventually, later in the 1920s, because she was just doing consultations and she started doing mail order horoscopes. Eventually, she's doing that in the teens. She's doing right. So, so it's probably Jordan who uh, her husband, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, Jordan, who goes and says, "Hey, you know, what's this stuff?" I mean, I'm fantasizing, but you know, he probably picked it up and said, "We could use this." Yeah. Let's well, eventually, so eventually, she does get married, and he becomes like partly like a business partner as well, and ends up helping to run her office. She ends right. up continuing to expand her office offices at Carnegie Hall, so that eventually oh, she just turns has the PR machine. I mean, whatever she was, whatever she was doing for PR audaciously, he turns into a machine. I mean, like right. you know, he he brings all of that to uh, he brings all of that to the table with her. He's a, a tremendous asset. To her, and, the, and then they business. just have they end up having like tons of um, assistants and employees. Um, she six suites, yeah, six, six suites. suites in Carnegie Hall on the tenth floor. Yeah, that's a lot of typists and like dozens of employees. And eventually, she gets on the radio and has like a whole radio show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, she has a radio show. She's she's sponsored by Forhan's Toothpaste, which. I hope I'm remembering it right with the Pepsi dent, but but the uh, there Forens was a competitor with the with the major toothpaste at the time, and so they underwrote her show, and okay. so she she would come on the radio uh, with this sort of sleepy time voice, and uh, I think her theme song was "Sweet Mystery of Life," you know, and she would you know she would speak into the microphone. I, I wish we had audio recordings because <laughs> it would be wonderful to know what her voice was, mm. um, and and actually she would do forecasts, but she was also doing question and answers and mm. things like that. Um, something that I do want to point out in American newspapers at that time, this is the 20s, um, there were several astrology columns that were syndicated. Um, in, fa in fact, the first uh, female astrology astrologer to be syndicated was Genevieve Kemble, 
1917. And she, uh, so this is at the time when Evangeline is just learning her voice and getting an interview or, or, or three, you know, but Kembo is uh, syndicated with her uh, Tomorrow's Horoscope, with the title of her horoscope from coast to coast. And so I've got papers from Portland, Oregon, Salt Lake City, Miami, Florida, you know, that, that carried her. So America was really hungry uh, for astrology and, and, and it would be different forecasts. Some were a whole page. Um, McClure Syndicate did this one anonymous astrologer who actually had like incredible real estate for a newspaper. And you have um, one of those publications. Were... It's a book, right? Um, I've got. Uh, you I've you got showed it to me printed... right before we started talking. Oh, oh! I was just I had Evangeline's book, but I have. Um, yeah, we... no those 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 newspapers are actually in in they're 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 really poorly. Um, reproduced mimeograph things, but I've got. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure you show you know, that book that you showed me at the beginning, since we're getting close to needing to wrap up here. Okay. Do you um, have her a book? book? Yes. Yeah. So, um, this uh, is basically what makes Evangeline Adams a household name. Uh, in addition to the uh, uh, radio show, she came out with this pamphlet, which is basically called Evangeline Adams's Own Book of Astrology, The World's Greatest Astrologer Reads Your Character in the Stars, you know, and she also teaches you astrology in this, you know, sort of thin book. And, mm -hmm. you know, the it's it's pretty much uh, the features, you know, of, of the time that gives the history of astrology, and then it gets into characters. And there's a book for each sign, and there are celebrities that are being shown. But what was amazing about this, and what makes it different from, for instance, Astrology Magazine, is that these were distributed through Woolworths. I don't know if a lot of people in your audience are familiar or, or remember Woolworths, but think of Dwayne Reed, okay? Um, it's a drugstore that, you know, it's all over the country. Well, Let's these, say Walgreens instead. Or Walgreens. Okay, let's yeah. go with Walgreens, okay? Okay. Uh, imagine Walgreens. It's a drugstore that goes from coast to coast in the country. Well, on every newsstand in Walgreens was were these twelve booklets, right. um, and so this was this was a big money maker for her. Um, it got her name out there even more um, than. And this just is in the nineteen twenties. This uh, is probably uh, nineteen uh, late nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. This actual book is nineteen thirty one. So, but um, you know, and this, this is, is when so towards the end of her life in the 1920s and early 1930s. This is actually towards the end of her life because she dies in her early 60s. But that's when she hits 60s, the peak no, of her popularity. Oh, in her age, in her 60s. I thought you said early 60s. Like, okay, yeah, no, she's in her. Yeah, she's at the peak of her popularity. Uh, what's extraordinary about Evangeline Adams is that she <laughs> she keeps going up. <laughs> you know, it's like she she she's always taking the next step up until you know the last one is literally up into heaven. You know, and she becomes this icon, this kind of like immortal you know icon. So the story of her life is this extraordinary um, upward upward climb, um, and that's what Karen kind of emphasizes in her book a lot is the extraordinary good luck and fortune that Evangeline Adams Adams has, and so she dies really at. You know what would be what would be the peak? I mean, there's talk of doing a Hollywood movie about her, and you know, and 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 getting her on a lecture circuit, and but she was easily as popular as any screen star at 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 the time, 
And and they were saying that more people know their astrological signs than you know the members of the president's cabinet. That was a big you know statement that was that was made in the papers, which isn't a big thing if you think about it, because how many of us know the members of cabinet? But anyway, but that was you know a, a statement or, or or a claim that that um, that the papers made. So she really went up. She really went out on a high note. I mean. Yeah. Because unfortunately, her health started to decline later in yeah. life, and so she was still doing stuff and was still very active, especially with the help of all of her her husband and all of her assistants and that huge like team of assistants that were doing stuff and answering. They set up to four thousand pieces of mail a day, and one of the things that's fascinating is she was really like leveraging what were new technologies at the time. Like being on the oh, radio yeah. was a new technology, and it's yeah. interesting. Astrologers often are at the Vanguard of of new and emerging technologies in different eras, and that was really one of the things she, that she did incredibly well. Particularly media, you know. There's there's two things that always like, you know, take the next step up with the new media. It's astrology and pornography. It's those two things. <laughs> it's like they both like explode. You know, when you go to print, when you go to book, when you go to you know film, when you go to whatever. Um, but she was. I mean, she's an Aquarius. What do you want? But um, she took. Incredible advantage of the new media, and and if she didn't understand it, she found someone who did, you know, right. and 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 they took care of that. So she her her deal was to bring the show, you know. She showed up and she brought the show, and then how it was distributed or whatever. But she becomes the model for um, Win, um, who right after she dies, um, uh, Win's horoscope. He 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 also does celebrity styled movie magazines with astrology and and things like that, and he cashes in on his Hollywood connections. Um, he certainly fills the void for a while with her. The big person that she becomes the model for is Bruce King, better known as as Zolar, who by the way was also had a radio show at the same time she did, and was taking questions and answers from the audience. Mm. Um, and then he designs little fortunes that you can get from fortune machines at the movie theaters. He strikes a deal with the movie theaters. So, you know, and then Zolar, we still know his name today. I mean, he becomes this juggernaut of of astrology from the 30s, you know, until when he passes, I think it's in the 70s. Um, but you can still still see a Zolar dream scope or a Zolar dreams interpreted or whatever. But his whole business model was Evangeline Adams. Um, and I don't know whether she would agree or not. I'm probably speaking out of turn. Um, but I would also say Susan Miller, you know, is very much, I mean, you know, whether she made those decisions consciously or not, but if you go back and look at her business model, it's very, uh, it's very, very similar to Evangeline Adams. And, um, you know, so, and, and, and again, it's a story of someone who really builds as an astrologer through the introduction of different media and, and technologies. So the ripple effect of Evangeline Adams really is, is, is really widespread. Yeah. And um, Holden refers to James Holden, who wrote what I consider to be one of, if not the most authoritative book on the history of Western astrology, titled A History of Horoscopic Astrology, calls her the most... Um, famous astrologer in the first third of the 20th century. And one of the things that stands out to me that's really fascinating by that, or America, in America, he says, I should qualify that. One thing yeah. that's fascinating to me about that is he doesn't say like female astrologer, it's mm -hmm. most famous astrologer in the first third, American astrologer in the first of the first third of the 20th century. And that's huge to me because that's a huge turning point where for like 
centuries, for 2,000 or 3,000 years up to this point, pretty much all of the figures that we know by name and the major people whose books that survive were astrologers who were men. And all of a sudden, there's this turning point in the late 19th and early 20th century, and Evangeline Adams is one of the first major figures of that where suddenly women come into their own as astrologers who are writing books and influencing the tradition in a major and perceptible way. Because Um, astrology takes off in women's magazines. Comfort Magazine in 1897 publishes a palmistry column and an astrology column. And Comfort Magazine was a household magazine, and it was the first magazine to reach a, a, a subscriber base of over a million. And so this is where, you know, women, you know, astrology is acceptable enough for a woman of the household to read it, you know, and to want to learn it. And so with women really sort of entering a different tier of the workforce, which is happening in the teens and the 20s, again, Evangeline Adams kind of like gives the demonstration of that. I mean, your other choice was to be an opera star or Hollywood, you know, star or whatever, but here Evangeline Adams is an astrologer and a major businesswoman. You know, right. we had other businesswomen around that time as well, but 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 so what she's standing for, you know, and that so many astrologers at that time, Bell Bart is another one, um, you know, are are women and they're speaking to a female audience. And again, this ground had been laid by spiritualism and women's liber it becomes later on women's liberation. This is the same thing that Linda Goodman is connecting to as well when she writes and probably becomes um, you know, you're gonna be like Christopher, but probably the second most famous American astrologer of the 20th century would be Linda Goodman, you know, and I would make the case that they're both women. Um, you know, someone can go with Carol Ryder or Sydney. I mean, no, I mean, I'm, she, Linda Goodman definitely had, she had the highest selling astrology book of the 20th century and perhaps yeah. of all time. Yeah. So they're both women. And, and, she, was, and she published that book in 1968. So she, that's like in the second third of the century or even last yeah. third third of the century. Yeah. I mean, you can have a lot of men contributing to astrology like Mark Edmund Jones or Dane Ridger or whatever, but people are going to know Linda Goodman. You know, so this is, you know, which is actually my case for why we should be looking at astrology in the popular culture as well, because this is what kept, this is why astrology is still here. And so, um, and this is the woman who uh, first made that possible, then followed up by, by, by Linda Goodman. And, and again, but with Evangeline, we, uh, you, what you're really seeing is her business model. You know, that becomes the business model for, you know, anyone who blogs or does anything on astrology or if you Instagram or anything like that, this is who was doing it first. You know, this is who had set that up, that formula up. And and Karen says standardized, that she had standardized astrology. And 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 that's another thing that we have to be really grateful to her for. Sure. And she certainly helped to pop re, to popularize astrology in America to make it acceptable and to pave the way for many other astrologers, both men and women, to make that their profession, um, Mm -hmm. whether they made that their profession and became professional astrologers or even just to develop a passing interest in astrology, even if it was just sun signs over the course of the next century. Well, and she also follows in the William Lilly tradition. Remember what Lilly's rivals are saying, you know, with the publication of Christian astrology. Well, now any sort of, you know, dressmaker or, 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 or bricklayer can become an astrologer because it's all been, you know, shown in this, you know, volume. Well, in her little book of astrology, I mean, 
she was aiming for, in a curious way, she was being old school. She was aiming for a definitive book. And she didn't realize that her real treasure was this. <laughs> right. And that, there's a funny little aside in Karen's book where she says that some astrologer actually objected to the publication of like one of her books and tried to get her thrown out of an astrological organization because yes. they said that she was oversimplifying astrology and just making and dumbing it down for the masses or something like yes. that, and that yes. therefore yes. not presenting in its true light. Well, you is, know what's funny about that, Chris? The person who was doing that was Sidney Bennett, better known as Wynne, the very man who would take her business model and produce the same kind of magazines that she did and call okay. on all of his Hollywood ta tactics. So it was the height of hypocrisy that this was the person who was leveling charges against her. But you know that's what happens whenever there's envy or rivalry or whatever in, in you know, different yeah. practices. Well, and it's one of those funny debates that's just a constant debate in the astrological community between um, astrology as this advanced subject and how astrologers practice and talk about astrology amongst themselves within the community versus astrology as it's presented to the public and the astrologers who are better able to or more directed towards speaking to astrology and presenting it publicly where you do have to simplify it to some extent versus you know doing a really advanced astrology within the community and the tensions between those two. Yeah, well, it's just like uh, an, a restaurant. You can have a five-star restaurant, and you can have, you know, a come-as-you-are restaurant. I mean, the thing is, what uh, there, there's a false, uh, there's and there's a split or antagonism or whatever, which which really should not exist. I mean, that's, that's right because there's a like, place for both. Is is the point? Yeah, you're of course. There. I mean, look how big heaven is. You know, there's all these stars in the sky. <laughs> I mean, and and one of the things that's really great about the history of astrology in America is that it's very democratic in the sense of like you can become your own astrologer, you know. But we also have a tradition of P.T. Barnum, you know, which is the showman, you know. And Evangeline Adams really personifies both of those things. I mean, there was a part of her which was really devoted to the science. And like any person who's devoted to getting the word out there, you know, it's as old as Moses. He can get you to the promised land, but he doesn't get to enter. You know, Evangeline Adams dies at the point. When she's established it, you know she's 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 pioneered it, and she's trailblazed, and she's been evangelical in her fervor or whatever, and she dies at this extraordinary high point. But what follows her is 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 really astrology taking over um, American culture, and that leads to a different topic or whatever. But that actually lays the foundation for the culture wars between astrology and the religious right that take place in the 80s and 90s and that we're still going with today. But but by mass marketing it, she brought astrology into the popular culture to such a point, you know, that it was a threat to other Christianities or religions. And what do we do to stomp this out? You know, it's not just science is a threat, you know, because they're telling us not to take the Bible literally, but astrology is a threat too. Uh, because it's prophecy and it's and it's you know knowing the universal will and and things like that. So so you know a byproduct of this is by popularizing astrology, she also recreated, in to some extent, the very thing the the very reason why astrology was dismantled in England. You know that it's come back into the populace, and you know it's kind of like Jurassic Park. They've reintroduced the dinosaur, <laughs> you know, type of thing, and she she did that. Yeah, well, and she dies at a really interesting crossroads, interesting period. That's like a great bookend for like the first third of the century in really reviving astrology in America, or or 
popularizing astrology in America and then dies in the early 1930s. And it's not long after that that we have the development and the advent of the sun sign column and sun signs show up over the course of the next decade or two in newspapers and start to be printed everywhere. Yes. She really set the stage for that and like paved the ground for that to eventually take over. And then eventually you get, like you said, works like Linda Goodman's Sun Signs that just further pr promote and popularize the idea of sun signs in the late 1960s and early 1970s where you have that explosion of interest in astrology from the, um, the Pluto and Leo generation and from the the hippie movement and everything else. We have to we have to be careful. By the way, really quick, this is the first sun sign column. Okay, it appears in this magazine. What's uh, the title January. for the audio listeners? The audio listeners. The title is Your Destiny Magazine of Astrology. Okay, okay. January, January nineteen thirty two. And this is the first time that a sun sign column appears in print. So this is an American invention, mm -hmm. and this is the first time that it actually shows up. What it's about this Naylor? Are you, so you're you're countering like the no, Richard Naylor? Naylor publishes publishes the horoscope of the new princess in 1930, and it's not mm. a sun sign column. I've I've seen it. I've seen the following their astrological forecasts. Evangeline Adams had been doing that since the teens and the twenties in newspapers. So that whole Naylor thing is it's great that he's a big deal in England, but as far as the history of astrology. And the history of astrology in America, you know, we we we're really constructing that right now. You know, which you would, you know, you do Hellenized astrology. You know, you reconstruct. You know, and so history of astrology in America, we're reconstructing. But Naylor, no, he does not invent the sun sign column. It first shows up in in this magazine, and it's an American product, and it follows on Evangeline Adams's buy a book that features your sign and you can read about yourself. So again, she's she's setting up the model for that. But where we have to be careful because everyone acts, you know how I was saying earlier that everyone thinks that astrology in America begins with Evangeline Adams's trial. Everyone thinks America, uh, astrology in America explodes in the 1960s. There was a very thriving popular astrological community in print and in magazines and publications in the 30s, 40s and 50s. Okay, it got sort of like it downturned in the 50s and then 1968 you've got the youth and then it, you know, comes forward. It's just like if you were to ask the millennials right now on Instagram, you know, they found astrology. Well, <laughs> you know, go 30 years ago or whatever, it's like no, it was just as popular then, you know. Uh, yeah. what's happening is that you have a new media and it's disseminating in a different fashion and it's, you know, seizing the imagination. But but well, the and it's 60s, also in different eras of and different types yeah. of astrology approaches. Like psychological astrology really comes into its own in the 60s oh, and yeah. 70s and 80s with that generation, whereas Evangeline Adams definitely represents an older school, and that would have been the type of astrology. And her approach, which is almost more predictive and deterministic, probably is part of what that group that came in in the 60s and 70s and 80s were reacting to. When they tried to say that they were rejecting sort of deterministic or overly fatalistic astrology, I would mm. say that I would almost think you, you, have, to some you have to be careful with that too, because you can make an argument that psychological astrology is being practiced in the uh, 30s. Dane Rajar introduces or is the first to bridge Jungian uh, Jung and and astrology. There's also psychology is being used in astrological titles in the books uh, of the of the early 30s. What you have with 1968. Um, which we're kind of calling the groundswell or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. What you have is astrology. What you have is actually this 
fascinating mirror to the spiritualist movement in the 1840s and 50s. You know, people are too, uh, are, are dropping out, tuning in, they're dealing with altered states of consciousness, uh, channeling is going to take off in the 80s. Um, and so astrology is seen as, what, what really propels astrology in the 60s is its, polit its political activism. Okay, mm -hmm. which actually also mirrors right now as well. I mean, you have uh, very politically voiced astrologers like uh, Channing Nicholas or Jessica Lenedo, you know, um, in which uh, Evangeline Adams would never have been that political, you know. But right now, there's a there's a there's a political uh, charge to it, and so that kind of really actually emulates the '60s. Uh, but, but, you know, in terms of like adjusting and reworking astrology, a lot of that work, sidereal, the work on sidereal astrology, things like that, that's taken place in the forties and the fifties, you know, so there's, there's, there's a lot, uh, I just want us not to think that astrology suddenly, you know, in the public mind, it does. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also associated to, again, um, the, uh, the, the, birth, the, uh, birth control pill and abortion and the attempt at ERA. So it's being driven forward again by a change in, in women's, in feminism and women's culture. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you know, but there's a lot of different ways that, 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 that we could play with that. But Jungian astrology, from my understanding, really comes into its being like in the, in the eighties, maybe late-ish seventies, but it's really like the eighties. But Rudyard lays the groundwork for it in, 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 in thirties. Yeah, 1936 is when the Astrology of Personality comes out, but then mm -hmm. he, and he keeps publishing books, but Rudyard really became super, at his most popular in the 60s and 70s from that generation oh, yeah. that came in then. Absolutely. And that's um, Esalen, and that's New Age, and that's its own uh, uh, thing. But mm -hmm. we also have to keep in mind that but politics drove it a lot, you know, mm -hmm. and that you had the collapse, you had another religious collapse. I mean, you know, the Time magazine cover, God is Dead, you know, uh, which appears in Rosemary's Baby, the film Rosemary's Baby. So so this was this feeling, and it supports a theory which I don't always agree with, but that as you have a collapse in religion, um, you have an outpouring or, or an upswell of astrology. I think that's based more on the rationality versus irrationality and, and those anxieties. But, but there is something to it that when there's a collapse in religion, um, in the standardized religion that astrology does seem to be moving forward. But in the 60s, it was political. And nowadays, it's also driven by a political uh, thrust as well. Sure. And then the very last thing that also makes Evangeline interesting in her epoch and astrology and what she represents from a technical standpoint is at one point she says her book was taking so long because she was still researching Neptune and still trying to figure out the significations of Neptune, which was only discovered in the mid-1800s. But in the early 20th century, she was still trying to like nail down, and astrologers were still trying to nail down its significations. And then Pluto was only discovered in 1930, so that never becomes like a major player in her work. And so then that that's also another generational shift that happened in that group in the 60s and 70s as they fully integrated Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto and made them like core components in their astrology. Yeah, you're seeing Arroyo do that. You're seeing uh, Liz Green do that. They're they're articulating a collective, uh, uh, a collective, a generational um, uh, brand or signature, you know. Um, and so you really see that being voiced. Um, the work that the work that had been done around Neptune, there was quite a bit of it actually in the early 19 teens in in American astrology periodicals. Mm -hmm. Neptune was. Uh, was was already seen as visionary, but it was given much more of a scandalous 
uh, air or, or or flavor to it. There was there was a by the time that she's practicing astrology in the twenties, there was a working idea of Neptune enough for her, I mean enough for her to kind of work with. Uranus was 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 a bit more defined. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I yeah, she was trying to work out right. I'm, she was trying to work out planetary cycles and things like that with Neptune. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the nineteen teens. All right. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. I think we did it. I think this is it, and we you think do? we've been able to do a decent treatment of our two topics of both the advent of astrology in America and the development of astrology in America, and also uh, one of the you know major leading astrologers, the most famous astrologer in the first third of the twentieth century, Evangeline Adams. Uh, so thanks a lot for helping me to do that today. Why don't we shout out, give a shout out one more time to Karen Cristino and her amazing work on Evangeline Adams, especially this book that she just published the revised edition of titled Foreseeing the Future, Evangeline Adams and Astrology in America. I will put yeah. a, link, a link to that. You can find it on Amazon and I'll put links to it where you can get it in the description page for this episode on theastrologypodcast.com. Absolutely. Um, any other books you want to mention bibliography-wise here? Uh, honestly, they don't. They don't stand up to Karen's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So she's the primary biographer, and she's great. Um, there is, of course, we mentioned the Crowley book that's been re-edited with his material, mm -hmm. which is titled "The General Principles of Astrology," uh, mm -hmm. that was published by Weiser in like two thousand three. Mm -hmm. Uh, that has a very interesting introduction that has a very sensible treatment of Crowley's relationship with Adams, where he seems to be um, very sensitive to the issue in terms of presenting both sides of the, the case. I mean, if we're more. looking for supplemental things or whatever, it's not a book, but um, I would probably also uh, direct people to the lecture I gave on trash astrology. Yes. Um, and that there's a version that UAC has, and there's a version that Tony Howard at Astrology University has. Um, and the reason I would direct you is because it actually puts it more in the context of, of the American history, but it, uh, the emphasis is on popular astrology. And there's lots of pictures. So there's a lot of reproductions of different periodicals, magazines, and things like that. So if you want to get kind of like a fuller, and, and it also deals with Evangeline, but uh, if you want to get a fuller idea of popular astrology in America, I would I would direct you to those those two places. Yeah, and that's a great where you really document the not the survival, but the popularization of astrology and it's it's um uh, really doing very well in sort of pulp uh, publications and magazines and, and newspapers and things like that, and documenting the sometimes underlooked or overlooked role that those played in um, the spread of astrology in the like nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 my that's my mission. <laughs> right. All right, so people can find that by just doing a search for like trash astrology, and like you said, it's available. Or as a maybe lecture. I can send you, I can send you a link to those two sure. lectures that you could post on the podcast page. Sure, or? I could put that a link to that on the podcast yeah. website if you'd yeah, like. Yeah, because I think it, yeah, because I think it would complement Karen's book quite quite nicely. You know, okay. to, to see the two, to, I mean, it, it would give a nice background for for her book. Yeah. And where can people find out more information about you? Um, at rulingplanets.com. 
Okay. So your website is rulingplanets.com. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Great. Well, thanks yeah. a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> it's always yeah, a pleasure I'm glad, for us. glad that we got to do this. And um, thank you to Karen once again for the referral and uh, you know being gracious about that, as well as congratulations for her to republish the revised version of that book. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening or watching to this episode of the po the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to all the patrons who supported it and made it possible. You can um, become a patron and get early access to new episodes by going to theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, please be sure to like this video and rate it on iTunes and YouTube. Otherwise, that's it, and we will see you again next time. So thanks okay. for watching. Okay, bye. Mm -hmm.